Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Paul Gregory Egan was an 18-year-old from Plantation, Florida. He had five siblings and worked for a family friend. During the early morning of July 21st, 1975, Paul allegedly drove his friend's Jeep home from work, with it ending up in his carport. Later that day, no one could locate Paul. He was never seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. talk about foul play quite a bit on Unfound. Why? Because there are many reasons to believe many of the disappearances covered are murders. But that is not to say all suspects are alike. There are the disappearances of Angela Green, Rosemary Rapp, and Brian Sullivan, and many others, where I'm not sure the people who committed those acts thought they would do so when the day started. Then there are those disappearances that were surely not accidents or crimes of passion or mistakes, all planned and done by evil people. Some of them are solved. Andrea Bowman, Tyler North, Kamisha Hollis, and some, unfortunately, that are still technically unsolved. Kelly Rothwell, Jeff Nichols, Beatrice Viela, and once again, many others. It's important to make a distinction between each type because knowing which kind can help ultimately to solve that particular case. This goes to something I've told college students so far. Know it when you see it. Well, with the disappearance of Paul Egan, his case is certainly in the latter category. But not only that. The suspect may be one of the worst people we've ever discussed in the past five and a half years. He is truly diabolical. And now a summary of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Lyonez's website, charlieproject.org. Paul Egan came from a large and prosperous Florida family. They had a home and plantation, but vacationed, if not lived, for extended periods of time with other families at Crooked Lake, three and a half hours away in the center part of the state. Paul became good friends with these other children and teenagers. He became an expert water skier. On the more personal side, Paul was great with the ladies 
and was a hard worker at a plant where a family friend was his supervisor. However, at the time of his disappearance, Paul was still not sure what he wanted to do with his life. So on Sunday, July 20th, 1975, in Plantation, as usual, Paul got picked up for an evening shift by that family friend, a 23-year-old Norm Rubottom. What was unusual is that the business was not normally open on Sundays. The next morning, Paul's brother Mark woke up to find Norm's Jeep in the Egan's carport and its keys on Paul's dresser. The story told by Norm later is that he allowed Paul to drive it home after work. Mark could not find Paul in the house. Paul was never seen again. Eventually, someone discovered one of the Egan's children's bikes was missing. Around that same time, Norm produced Paul's wallet, saying he found it in his Jeep once he got the vehicle back. Just last week, with the Milligan episode, there was the discussion of friends. Could Harry's have harmed him? Or at the very least, do they know what happened to him? All in all, you, the audience, doubted both. With Paul's disappearance, my perception is things will be a bit different. However, I still want you to think about this case and analyze it by trying to answer these three questions while listening to the interview. Number one, if Paul was having problems with Norm, why didn't he leave that job? Number two, if Norm is responsible, why was he so clever in some aspects, but such a bad liar in others? And number three, is it unreasonable to believe that Norm could be a serial killer? And how would you go about trying to prove that? Paul's family has no doubt that Norm Rubottom caused Paul's disappearance. The guest for this episode is Paul's sister, Marion Egan. Unfound News The Unfound Newsletter came out last Friday, April 1st. Yes, no fooling. If you got it, you must be on the list. If you didn't, you must not be on that list. Please contact me at unfoundpodcast at gmail.com if you'd like to become one of the cool newsletter kids. Next, the upcoming Unfound Now will be released to the general public on the Unfound Podcast YouTube channel this weekend. Please like it, share it, and become a subscriber. This month's episode covers the February 2022 disappearance of Lindsay Shobalock. Finally, the responses so far to the video interviews on YouTube for the episodes have been positive. I'm going to continue to work on the lighting and camera angles. I hope to eventually provide a different look every week. All in good time. Where you can find Unfound. Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, Podbean, and many other platforms, especially outside the United States. 
Unfound has social media accounts on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Speaking of YouTube, join me on Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Unfound podcast channel for the live show. The only one of its kind in true crime. Ask questions, chat with other viewers, and give the show a thumbs up. You can contribute to Unfound in the following ways. Patreon.com forward slash Unfound Podcast. PayPal.me forward slash Unfound Podcast. Contribute during the live show with Super Chat. And lastly, join the YouTube membership program for the low price of $2.99 per month. I need to thank the following people for contributions to Unfound this week. Erica, Charlotte, and Stitching. The website, theunfoundpodcast.com. The email address, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And please mention Unfound at all true crime websites and forums. Thank you. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the sister of Paul Egan, Marion Egan. Marion, welcome to Unfound. Yep. Let's start here as we usually do when we have family members on the program. And this, I think, forms a very, very, even more than usual, forms a very important part uh, of the discussion we're going to have probably for the next couple hours. Let's talk about your family. Tell the listeners about the Egan family of the early to mid-1970s. How many kids? Where did you live? What was it like being in the Egan family? Uh, six kids, four big brothers, then me and a younger sister. Uh, so eight of us wow. and grandparents nearby, some aunts and uncles nearby. So we had extended family on Sunday dinners, all major holidays. Um, as I get older, I realize we had a great childhood. Yeah. My parents were happy. We lived well, you know, we didn't ever have to struggle. We always knew we were going to have the next meal and we got a good education from my parents. And I thought everybody was that way. Yeah, right. But we were, it was a happy childhood, normal, fun. We were about six miles from Fort Lauderdale Beach in a rapidly growing suburb called plantation so we were outdoors kids a lot come home from school get your homework done the shoes come off and you're outside till dinner time and then sometimes back outside running with your friends till bedtime especially in the summer so it was uh uh, compared to many people a pretty idyllic way to grow up that's Florida, right? Of course, all the listeners know that I now live in Florida, but of course I did not grow up here, but that's Florida living, right? Uh, taking advantage exactly. of the year-round ability to do all those things. And riding our bikes to and from school when we reached a certain age and riding bikes around the neighborhood, which in a lot of places, kids don't get a chance to do. And it's not done as much anymore in general, yeah. but not just the location, but the family unit. Of course, we squabble. We teased each other. You know, my sister and I, as the tail end of the pack, got quite a bit of teasing from 
all the brothers. Huh. But, uh, yeah. you know, that that's just part of growing up a large family, I think. Yeah, and that's, uh, I'm glad you brought that up. So maybe if you could explain, uh, it sounds maybe like you and your sister were the youngest children. Yes. Where are you in that compared to Paul? And I know, of course, you have, like you said, you have other siblings. What is like the order? How okay. close were you and Paul, like in age? Uh, maybe that Paul information. Paul is six and a half years older than I am. And then eight and a half years older than Pam, my sister. And then our four big brothers were in order. Mark, who is um, two years older than Paul. Okay. More like a year and a half. My mom had my first, the four boys, very quickly. So Mark, at the time of the disappearance, was 20. Okay. Paul was 18. Chris was almost because Chris and Paul were both born in 1957, just wow. 11 months apart. That is rare. Interesting. And then uh, Tom was 15. So Tom is three, three and a half years older than I am. So the gap between the four boys born in four and a half years yeah. is another three, three and a half years before my sister and yeah. I came at the tail end. Yeah. So you had four older brothers, two girls having four older brothers. I guess you never had to worry about being messed with or anything, right? Or <laughs> Oh, no. Well, they, as I mentioned, they would tease us. Oh, they would. We all had nicknames and stuff. But heaven help if anybody else did. One yeah. day I was riding home from school with my brother, Chris, who was about five grades ahead of me. But we went to a Catholic school that was kindergarten through eighth grade. So he and I had an overlap at the same school of a couple of years. And I was old enough to ride my bike, but not alone. So I was riding home with him one day and one of his buddies. And one of his buddies made a crack about me. You know, Chris mm. joke, made a joke about me about something. Mm. And his buddy chimed in. Oh, no. His <laughs> buddy almost got a fist. So and. They were all that way. And Paul was probably the most vocal with protection. Wow. Yes. Okay. The most verbal about his little sisters. Okay. Well, let's talk about this also plays a huge part of what we're going to be ta uh, talking about regarding Paul's disappearance is this summer home that you had where everybody would go skiing and these other families. What do you remember about it? Why was it? Let's say, why was it those those families? How did your family know? Of course, we're going to talk about the Rue Bottoms. How did your family know them? What was the connection between all of you that you would spend that time at this lake in a different part of Florida during the summer? Connection was through the couples, the adults, the parents in each of these families. Um, they did business with each other. You know, my dad was an attorney, so he okay. represented most of the couples in their business enterprises. Um, they socialized. My parents were had a very active social life and these couples were at every party we had down in Plantation and they would go to their friends' homes for parties. Sometimes they'd vacation together, uh, like a long weekend trip. So all of the parents knew each other and socialized throughout the year. All of the kids did not play together or socialize 
all throughout the year because we went to different schools. So some of us who are in the same age group who all went to St. Gregory's Catholic school, I would see them all throughout the school year and then the two weeks at the collection of villas on Crooked Lake. Um, My brothers went to St. Thomas Aquinas High School in Fort Lauderdale, Catholic high school. I think I've heard of that. But Steve... Uh, Rubottom went to South Plantation High, as did some of the other teenagers in the group. So they didn't socialize or hang out much throughout the year. You know, different proms, different football games, different homecomings. So um, the ones who went to school together saw each other throughout the year. But those two weeks every summer, we were all... Those were your best friends, those two weeks. Now, my understanding, though, is you at, your family actually had a house there. Did they also have houses on this lake, or was it a rental situation, or what was it? It started out in a place called Blackwell Villa, which is a, a collection of small cabins for rent on one section of beach of Crooked Lake. In 1973, my parents bought the lake house three miles as the crow flies across on the western shore of the lake at that time four or five of the other families pooled their money and bought a big mansion on part of the lake and that place also had a pool not a good beach but it had a pool so we'd go over there some days for cookouts and swim in the pool but when water sports were part of the plan, and with my brother and Steve, that was part of the plan every day, <laughs> uh, they'd come over to our beach at that point. When the um, purchases came into play, um, we never went back to the little villas. But that was a very significant part of the first eight or nine years that my parents did this because these villas were, you know, five feet from each other from outside. And when my brothers got old enough, they got their own villa, you know, on 400 feet away. Yeah. And we could walk around that little community at night and out, it had a huge dock and go hang out on the dock until bedtime for the little kids. And then the teenagers could hang out later and the parents had cocktail hour out on the dock. That's so fantastic, yes. Sometimes kids would sleep over in the Egan's cabin or a couple of my brothers would sleep over in someone else's cabin. So it that led to the initial cohesiveness of that summer group. So everybody was very tight and we're going to be talking. And the reason we're talking about this so in depth is because I think it's a very important part of this disappearance, but all these families, the Egan's, the Rue Bottoms and any other uh, families that got together all very close during this time, the, the early to mid seventies. Yes. And some of the, a fa- couple of the families were related to each other, Okay, as you know. So, okay. yeah. Let's uh, now just talk about, we talked about the families, the situation going on there in the early to mid-70s. Let's talk, of course, the reason we're here is because Paul went missing. Let's talk about him. When you think about him, of course, you said he was the most vocal, maybe the most protective of his 
his two younger sisters, but some of the other things that he was interested in, his personality. Of course, you have that picture of him in the background, with which I think is spectacular. And I know where that uh, that painting uh, comes from, from a picture that I'm sure by this time, by, every, by the time everybody's hearing us or seeing us, they will have seen the picture in total. But let's talk about Paul. What do you remember about him as an older brother, as a young man, et cetera? What can you say? Oh, my brothers were all so different. Paul um, was good looking. He was intelligent. He was funny, very quick to laugh. He could get angry rapidly too, but he wasn't one to hold a grudge for very long and um, very athletic. He pretty much did well in everything he tried and skiing was his best. Mm-hmm. He, any trick ski he could get his hands on, he'd be trying up at the lake. Um, he was good with his hands. One of his last projects was fixing up an old 57 Chevy station wagon. Wow. And he had stripped out the inside. This is with a friend of his named Don. They had stripped out the inside, taken out the bench seats and put in, um, bucket seats for the driver and passenger side and had these instead of the regular pedals they looked like bare feet gas in the brake in very 70s yeah yeah that's true yeah and he was putting shag carpet in the back so just the two seats up front and then the rest was flat with shag carpeting and pillows and they were going to take a road trip wow the outside, I remember, had no paint. It was down to that gray color. Primer, yeah, primer, yeah. The, uh, it sat in our carport for a long time because it wasn't running. So when he wasn't working or wasn't up at the lake skiing, that was the hobby I remember most because he was working on it for a good four or five months, mm-hmm. trying to get that to be a really cool cruising car for, yeah. for himself and Don and other buddies. Uh-huh. What was the status of this car at the time of his disappearance? Was he driving it yet, or is this still a project? In uh, I think it. I think it was starting. Got the engine starting, but it was still in. You know, after he disappeared, of course, nothing happened to it. It stayed. My parents kept it where it was. Um, he still had stuff to do on the inside because it had a very distinctive sound when a door was shut on it. You could tell it was hollow inside, almost hollow. Okay. You know, yeah. you've taken out the roof material too yeah. and was going to put something else in there. Mm-hmm. So it ran, but in terms of his vision of what this car was going to look like, uh, he was he was ways away from completion. Okay. okay. Very good. Yeah. Uh, as, um, you know, regarding once again, we know that he was just a young man who went missing. Um, what were his, do you think his aspirations were uh, as far as higher education Did, at that point in his life? Had he talked about what he wanted to do with his life? Obviously, his father was a lawyer. Did, was Paul interested in that? Or what? had he not gone missing, what do you think he was going to do? You know, I've given that some thought because a couple of my brothers have known from very young ages what they wanted to do. And I don't think that was Paul. I 
don't recall him ever expressing a very strong desire to pursue a specific path. Going to college, yes. Mm -hmm. But I think he was open to, you know, the first couple of years. His plan was to go to junior college and get those core prerequisites handled, which then expose you to optional paths. He wasn't dead set. I'm going to be a lawyer like Tom was. Tom knew when he was 10, he wanted to be a lawyer. Mark wanted to be an architect. Chris ended up becoming a lawyer, but he didn't decide that till he was in his late 20s. He went back to college at 28. So Paul was a little bit more like Chris in not being so certain about his career path at 18. I easily, Mm -hmm. in retrospect, could imagine him finishing that car and trying to talk my parents into taking what they now call a gap year and maybe just taking a very long road trip um cruising around the united states yeah just to learn more about himself and life in other places i mean we always traveled so all of us enjoyed traveling my father couldn't live without it yeah and the travel bug hit all the kids so i know he had a bit of that but i'm sure he I, I mean, I, I can't say I'm sure. Uh, he was planning to travel on for an end of summer road trip before they started school. But as I said a few minutes ago, I wouldn't be surprised if he would have wanted to extend a road trip into a longer um, journey of discovery, yeah, so to speak. Yeah, it's uh, it was the time of Easy Rider, right? Uh, motorcycles. Yeah. Uh, Jack Nicholson, et cetera. I'm sure that was on a lot of young people's minds. I remember the 70s, but I was born in 1970. So I just have yeah. little glimpses and things. My knowledge of the 70s probably doesn't start until about disco in about 77 or 78, as far as my memories go. But okay, thank you. What about uh, women, relationships, uh, high school? Did he have a girlfriend in high school or what, what was the situation there? Paul did very well with the ladies. He had that cool factor. You know, some people have it, either have it or you don't. And I look at pictures of him when he's like eight, nine years old. And just the way he's standing, he's cool as an eight-year-old. So that didn't extend to an ego. He certainly wasn't um, egotistical at all or conceited. But... He reached an age where he realized he did well with the ladies. One of my, um, one of Chris's friends who I thought was such a ladies man told me once about 20 years ago, I couldn't hold a candle to Paul. I've been standing in a room in, in in a club with him somewhere and all he has to do is look at a girl across the room, catch her eye, and she'd come over. So mm-hmm. I never saw him in action that way. I was his little sister. He wasn't going to let me see that. But he had um, a way with the ladies. In his last year, he was dating a girl. Okay. Um, and they were exclusive. You know, they, they, we still have the, my mom had the prom picture hanging on the wall for a very long time. 
and she was with him right up until his disappearance. Okay. Now, one more thing I want to ask you uh, about is, uh, of course, we're going to be talking about, uh, we're going to refer to him as either Norman or Rubottom, his last name. We're not going to refer to him as his first name because his first name just happens to be Paul. So for all the, the listeners and viewers out there, I just want you to understand that this guy's name at the time was Paul, but that'll just confuse uh, yes. you know, the entire conversation here. But what do you remember, of course, um, Paul being 18, getting this job about where he ended up working at this processing plant? Uh, what do you remember about that specifically? Um, and we'll get to Norman Rubottom here in a second. But what do you remember about him working there? How did he get that job? He started working there. I think nine or 10 months before he disappeared, but he was still in high school. Uh, It was his first semester of his senior year, and it was a part-time job, maybe some weekend hours here and there. But he wrapped up his high school career early. He graduated in December of 74. So he didn't have to take any classes before official graduation after the second semester. So January on, he was, you know, a full-time worker at the plant. Okay. Uh, from what I remember, it, it paid well. He'd been a busboy for a long time. All my brothers were mm-hmm. busboys in a restaurant, a friend of my dad's own. And, you know, busboys don't get tips. It's not a decent hourly wage. And, um, we knew the family that owns the plant and they paid well for what Paul was doing. He was working. He was a technician. I remember he used to fix their equipment, you know, what same way he was fixing the car. Mm-hmm. He also picked up Spanish very quickly because most, many of the workers were Cuban. Okay. Huh? So he, right. we went on a vacation uh, in the summer, not long after he started working there the previous summer. And we were to Mexico, the family did, and he got us through talking. And he, that's another thing about him. He would pick up some phrases during his part-time work at the plant. And then he'd come home dinner time, or maybe a little bit after. And we had an exchange gal living with us from Honduras at the time, who was older than Mark. She was older than all six kids. And he would sit down with her and practice and she would say, oh no, that's slang. That's lazy Spanish. You need Ah. to perfect your Spanish. Ah. And she told him she was teaching him the Queen's Spanish, proper writing and reading. And he was picking up too much slang at the plant. But that was at his request to sit down with her just about every night and just talk to her to clean up his Spanish. Now, something about this job, though, is that although the Rubottom family did not own it, one's like a relative or somebody owned uh, that, and that's how Paul got this job, the way you understand it? Yes. Um, Rubottom, Rubottom's mother, Betty, her maiden name was Theobald. Her brother, George, Paul's uncle, uh, sorry, Norm's uncle, yeah. um, ran the operations for the family. I think it was a business that their father 
or grandfather established in New Jersey several decades earlier. Um, George and Betty were two of seven, six or seven kids with families who all earned some income from this business. At the time, I only knew about the Miami plant. And before Paul disappeared, I learned they had one in Colorado. And then after Paul disappeared, learned they had one in Louisiana. But it was a larger enterprise than I ever knew at the time. But um, Norm and his mom and stepdad and brother would vacation with us the two weeks every summer. And his uncle's family, his uncle and aunt and their children would vacation with us as well. Their children were much younger. I went to school with one of them. And I saw her all year round from the time we were four or five years old. So it was those two families. It was convenient that uh, he got this job because you, your families knew each other. Yes. Hey, uh, Paul wants a job. Let's just go uh, work. And we'll get into the specifics of this plant here in a little bit, but that's how he got this job. Correct. Okay. All right. Very good. Now, this guy is going to be uh, a prominent discussion from now to the uh, to the end of this episode, however long we go. But we just mm-hmm. want to talk about him in general terms. And this is the guy that I said, we're going to refer to him either as Norm or Norman or Rubottom, which mm-hmm. is, of course, the last name. Just in general, uh, who is he or was he? Um, did any of your... Any of you know him? This is something, did you know him like as a little kid or is this something you didn't get to know him until he was a teenager? Now, I understand he was a few years older than Paul, but what can you say in general uh, about Norman Rubottom? I remember him at the lake from my earliest conscious memories, but he was so much, he's 10, 11, 12, you know, much older than I was. He was always helpful with teaching the boys how to ski. You know, you've got the boat driver and the second person in the boat for safety, but all of us, older kids could ski. The younger ones are trying to learn. And he, he would be helpful with some of those kids with the skiing. Um, I remember him more in the early years hanging out with the parents more. He was supposed to have been an actual genius, a very, very high IQ. IQ. Okay. And he was um, instrumental. This is what I used to hear. I might get the company wrong. A large utility company, instrumental in helping get them computerized. This was, you know, he went to college in the infancy of computerization you know broad use of computerization and he supposedly excelled in that was just fantastic in that and again i heard all the time how bright he was and that he did actually have a genius iq um he didn't interact with me much or my sister or younger kids in general. Um, And it wasn't until maybe a year or two 
before Paul disappeared that he seemed to just start coming around our house a bit more, uh, not outside of the summer, um, visit to the lake. Mm -hmm. So this was a situation where not only would you, your family, his family get together at the lake, but they lived kind of like near where you did down in Plantation, Florida. Back in Plantation, all the families, I think we all lived within a Okay. Three mile radius, okay. four mile radius. Yeah. Okay. So um, Norman, did he go to the same high school as like any of your siblings or, or, or no, or do you even, do you even know? I even think know? he went to South Plantation High. Okay. Um, but I'm not aware of his graduation. I mean, he was just there. I was playing and jumping off the dock with the younger kids. He was Mm -hmm. a fixture in the summers, but Mm -hmm. he didn't have much use for little kids and we didn't have much use for him. You know, so Mm -hmm. I didn't interact with him much and would not have paid any attention to uh, high school graduation. I'm sure I knew him at that age, but I just was not aware I do remember he went to Emory in Atlanta. Okay. And that's where he developed his computer skills. Um, And I'm not aware when he graduated or even if If he he did. did. Yeah. So what we're also saying here is that uh, he was not only was he, uh, uh, you know, maybe 10 years older than you, he was older than Paul by maybe five Five, years. Five years, which at that age, is significant it's a big difference sure it is absolutely sure sure it is okay so you remember him being more around the parents he maybe liked to hang out with the the parents a little bit more maybe than the 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 teenagers even though i guess he was uh water skiing and uh, you know with paul and everybody else what do you remember about this once again just what you observed at the time even though i know you were a a very young girl that uh relationship between paul and Norman, we have to remember, Norm worked at this plant too. Their interaction, you know, maybe in the year or months before, uh, how did the two of them seem to get along when you saw the two of them together? And we'll get into the other stuff later, but just what you observed. Up until Paul worked at the plant, they really didn't interact a whole lot. Huh. Uh, they were both excellent skiers as was Paul's, uh, Paul was closer with Steve, who was Norm's younger brother. Steve was only a year older than Paul. And those two were the lake best buddies every summer. But the three of them, all three of them were the best skiers out of everybody, probably still to this day. (laughs) Okay. Um, so most of the interaction I recall before Paul went to work at the plant would have been at the lake and involving skiing and the older kids who were good would ski at six in the morning when the water's like glass. And then later in the day, they would help the younger ones try to learn. Once Paul started working at the plant full time, everything seemed okay it was just that seven month period you know january to his disappearance in july 
I only saw them together when Rue, when Rue Bottom would come over to our house. Mm-hmm. And he did that ever more frequently as the months went on. But most of the time, he was talking to my mom and dad. You know, he didn't, he said he didn't get along with his mom and stepdad. And he really respected my parents. So he kind of was, would come over. It had to be at least twice a week. I remember cleaning up the dishes from the dinner table and in he'd come and he'd go back in the den and sit and talk with my parents. And he'd uh, seek advice from them or, on the one hand, because of his intellect, we all just thought he kind of just considered us too stupid to (laughs) give any attention to. And that's why he was always seeking the adult conversation. I don't know what they talked about, but like I said, a couple times a week, he'd come over and he would knock at the door and like close friends use the side door. And then it got to the point though, where he could knock and then just come in through the unlocked door. So it reached that level of informality. Uh, Familiarity. Uh, Would you say then that your parents uh, thought highly of Norman? Yeah, they trusted him. I mean, they had known him for, you know, consciously. (laughs) I didn't pay attention to him most of the time. But they had been friends with his aunt and uncle and his mom and stepdad for years. Mm -hmm. So they knew him from the time he was probably... 12 13 years old okay all right so they knew him for like 10 years um before uh paul went yes and he just came over and they would talk and uh but then the coming over the coming over was in in the last mostly in the last six months and paul always seemed okay i mean he was hanging out with this older guy so having access to experiences he wouldn't have with his high school friends and um he seemed okay when when norm was around things seemed to change very rapidly while we went up to the lake house for the summer so in a three or four week period we were supposed to be up there most of the summer my parents and chris tom pam and i and you probably want to get more into detail on that later but while we were at the lake after paul disappeared is when all the stuff came out from other people about paul trying to distance himself from Rue Bottom in terms of friendship and not lose his job over it or not wanting to hang out with him outside of work hours anymore. So something All right, we'll get really- in, we'll get, we will get into that later. Thank you very uh, for okay. foreshadowing that. One more thing, and it's going to come up later, so I might as well just bring it up right now. At the time before Paul's disappearance, was it known or was it suspected, did it ever come up that Norm Rue Bottom was gay? No, I don't believe anybody knew, not in okay. my family. Okay. 
uh, at the time, I didn't even know what that, what homosexual meant. Right, of course. I learned what that meant as a result of his questioning after Paul's disappearance. Okay. Um, that was a time young men just, just it's too dangerous sure. to come out. Sure. Still. Okay. All right. So we'll come back to that later. All right. So we have Norman Rubottom. He's going to play a prominent part uh, here in a little bit, as you probably already can tell. Let's just talk about this job. What kind of place, what, what went on at this place? What did this business do that Norman's family owned where Paul worked, like you said, for several months before he went missing? What went on at this plant in Plantation, Florida? It's what they call rendering. It was a rendering plant. And they use the carcasses of animals, the meat we don't eat, it's described as, to uh, make tallow and cat food and other products that we use. So dead animals would be brought there. And then the rendering process took place in the plant with machinery I never saw. I got a peek through a door once, but it was a very large facility and whatever machinery was required to turn carcasses into those products was under that roof. Wow. So it was really, uh, I think that I've read about this, maybe you've even talked about like dead horses or parts of horses you bring Cows, it in there. Yeah. They put it into some machine and it grinds it up to the point that you can't even tell what it was. That's so just layman's terms. At the time, Paul would talk about, they called it the pit. And at the dinner table, you know, he was the only one with a full-time job of all the six kids. And it was kind of fascinating. The first one into, you know, adulthood mm -hmm. and he'd come home. And at the dinner table, you know, we sat together every night, the whole family, it was conversation time. And Paul would just tell some stories about things that happened at work. And once in a while, he'd talk about the pit. I was kind of fascinated, but the pit is the um, nickname for this giant area at the plant where trucks back up large, you know, 18 wheeler trucks would back up with the carcasses, the animals, and they would be dropped into this area that took the carcasses underground. And that was called the pit. And it could grind. Paul used to, I could still hear him saying it. A horse will disappear in seven seconds. Wow. Yeah. Okay. okay. That's so the that's... power of the grinders. Okay. And once again, I realize you did not work there. And I know you told me you got a one tour by Norman at one point. But the best you can understand is how many people maybe worked at this plant in 1975. Your best guess. Oh, my best guess. And I'm probably going to underestimate maybe a hundred. Pretty big. Pretty big. It's I mean, pretty I, big, I, I don't know facility. if I'm going by the size of the building in my little mm -hmm. almost 12 year old memory. Mm -hmm. And I didn't see the floor as it was called where all the equipment was, but it was big. Now, granted, a lot of that machinery might have been big and took up mm -hmm. a lot of that space. Okay. But um, I'll say a hundred. Okay, very good. 
and um, your understanding, once again, I understand you didn't work there, but the best you, to your knowledge, was this a five-day-a-week business or was this like a 24-7 business? Did it work on Saturdays and Sundays? Was it like a 7-Eleven convenience store where it's open all the time? What is your understanding regarding this business? Well, I didn't pay attention back then until Paul disappeared, mm. but I just remember that he didn't go in on Sundays. Rubottom was always at our house on Sundays. I washed his Jeep for $2 every Sunday. Mm -hmm. So the day he was called in was July 20th, a Sunday. Mm -hmm. He went in to work. Supposedly well, before, we get, before we get, I just, yeah. I just want okay. to establish right. right now. Okay. I'm just trying to establish right now um, what the hours were of this business. It, For example, okay. we get to the point where we talk about Paul going in on a Sunday. Okay. What was the, the plant usually closed on that day? Was it open? That's just okay. to your best of your knowledge. Well, what then I'm going to have to just say that I assumed as a child mm -hmm. that it was a Monday to Friday business. It may have had several shifts. There may have been upticks in activity based on uh, shipment of animals. Mm -hmm. So, um, I assumed it was Monday to Friday, but I think I, I know I'm wrong now. Okay. okay. All right. Very good. Let's move on to this. All right. So we have an idea about this plant, what the job was, what was done there. And it, and this plant turns, like you said, into cat food. Did I read somewhere? Maybe they made soap out of some of these things yes. and everything. Yes. Okay. All right. Tallow. Yeah. Okay. Very good. What was Paul's living situation at the time of his disappearance? It sounds to me like he was living at home or was he living with one of his brothers? What was his living situation at the time of his disappearance? Paul lived at home. He never had an apartment or anything. Um, he and Mark, the two oldest boys, did not come to the lake with us that summer because they both had jobs. Okay. And my father was letting them test their independence. So my parents and the four younger kids went up to the lake. Paul and Mark stayed in the house and plantation. And whenever they had a few days off in a row, they would drive or take the train. It's a three and a half hour drive in the car up to the lake and stay with us for a few days. At the same time, my dad was going back a couple days every week for his practice. Mm -hmm. So there were times when he'd be there with both Mark and Paul or times when he'd be there with Mark and Paul would be up at the lake. So Mark and Paul's schedules rarely coincided. Mark at the time was, I think, in the restaurant industry. So he worked nights and Paul generally worked days, so they would be like ships passing in the night, but um, they were still in the family home and then coming up to visit us at the vacation place whenever they could. Okay, so later when we start talking about uh, Norm's Jeep, et cetera, we're talking about this vehicle being left at actually your house where everyone lived, although some yes, yes. Those people were not there at the time, but that's where this Jeep will get to. In later. plantation. Yes. Plantation. Very good. Okay. Thank you. 
Now, you mentioned uh, that this particular summer he's working, uh, Paul's working, Mark has his own job and maybe going to school as well, as I might have read somewhere. But uh, let's move up to July 15th, and this is a, a time at which uh, Paul was up at the, uh, you know, and this might have been maybe the last time that you saw him. He was up there. And there was a comment that he made to your mother at some point during this time being up there about, Mom, I need to talk to you about something. Did you actually hear that? Or is this something your mother told you later? What was it? My parents pretty much shielded my sister and me from details of the case at the time. Mm -hmm. We eventually moved to the lake place permanently. And when I was 17, so five years later, my sister was 15. They sat us down and told us, um, they said they were telling us everything, but parents probably don't share everything. But uh, in the initial weeks after Paul's disappearance, the rest of the family would be behind closed doors somewhere and Pam and I would not be privy to that conversation. So my parents sat us down in 1980, it was. And that's when she told us what happened that day. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, Paul was the first one up and in the water to ski. Mm -hmm. And usually the last one out of the water. And we developed a routine. You know, the better skiers in the water, 6.37 a.m. The littler kids come out around 9 or 10. Then 12 or 1, it's up to the house for lunch. So my mom was in the house, our house, making lunch, making sandwiches. And she heard the lakeside door open. And Paul came in. And right off the bat, she thought, well, what's up? What's up with that? I mean, he's usually the last, he's getting that one last run in that one last loop on the lake before getting out of the water. So for him to be up to the house, you know, 10, 15 minutes before the rest of us was odd to her. And he sat down at the kitchen table and she could see that he was a little out of sorts. And She asked him if he's okay, and he didn't answer right away. And then she told us that she thought, I'm not going to pressure him. If he has something he wants to tell me, I'll let him, I'll let him do it. So a few seconds after she made that mental choice to let him come to her when he's ready, he said, "Um, mom, there's something I've got to tell you. I need to talk about something. And she said she felt relief that he was telling her, but a little bit of, okay, what's going on? A little fear. And she said just then the lake door opened again, and the patter of children's feet came running in for lunch, and the moment was broken. Huh. Yeah. So while lunch occurred, the phone rang. And it was Rue Bottom. My mom answered and she said, Paul, it's for you. It's Rue Bottom. And my brother didn't want to talk to him. And she hmm. said, it's too late. He knows you're here. <laughs> he heard yeah. me say your name. And he was angry. And he took the phone from her 
and he just said what which we were not allowed to do that that was a punishable offense yeah. considered rude yeah but he just said what and my mom said he didn't talk much he just listened for a minute or two and then he said no i'll take the train and then he slammed down the phone and he got out his little duffel bag and he started throwing his stuff in it. And my mother said, what's going on? And he said, uh, Norm's coming up to get me. And she, he wasn't supposed to leave for another two days at the time. Norm, and I just want to jump in for a second. We just say, this is July 15th, 1975. This is yes. like, let's just call it five days before his disappearance. This is happening on July 15th, right. 1975. Please continue, yes. please. And the kids, the younger kids, we had finished eating and we were in a different room sitting on the floor playing Monopoly. And we didn't hear this exchange. But my mom said Paul was really ticked off that Norm was going to drive all the way up three and a half hours to pick him up and then turn around and go back another three and a half hours. And... He said, why can't I, I just want to call Amtrak. I'll change my ticket. And my mother said, let him come pick you up and save the money. Just exchange the ticket for next time you come up here, but he's probably already on the road, you know? So just let him do it and pocket the money or use the ticket for the next time. And then Rubottom arrived at the house. We were in the house. Still, we hadn't gone back down to the lake. And Rubottom came in, and none of the four of us sitting on the floor playing Monopoly cared one iota for him. He had no use for us either. Yeah. So we didn't pay attention. And uh, he never stepped all the way through the house. He only came as far as the kitchen near the driveway area and spoke to my mother. Now, at this point, I don't remember where my dad was. I don't know if daddy was down in plantation and going to cross paths with Paul, who's headed back down there now. But this part of the story, only my mother is involved. Mm -hmm. So she said, Rubon came in the house and he was his usual polite self to Mrs. Egan and made chit chat with her while Paul finished gathering his things. And we didn't pay much attention to the comings and goings of our brothers because they did have odd schedules. So there wasn't a lot of standing around with big goodbyes or anything. Yeah. So that was very surprising to us that while uh, Rubottom was talking to our mother, Paul came walking to the other side of the house to where three of his youngest siblings and a family friend were seated playing Monopoly and he had a hat on that I had given him the previous Christmas. It was a fisherman's hat. You know, you usually see them with all the bait and mm -hmm. hooks and you know what I mean? All yeah, the, the sure. things pinned to it. Yeah, yeah, He didn't do that, but he got this old man's fisherman <clears throat> hat that I gave him for Christmas and he made it cool and he wore it everywhere that he could 
every single day. And he had it on mm -hmm. to leave. I was so proud that I got my cool brother something cool. So he had that hat now seven months and he walked into the front room. He looked down at us playing Monopoly and he said, goodbye. And we just went, oh yeah, see ya. Mm. Roll the dice. And he stood there and his legs were right next to my sister and me. And he said, I'm leaving now, guys. I said, oh, yeah, bye. Went back to the game. Mm -hmm. He took off the hat and it dropped in my lap. Mm -hmm. And then he said the words that we say all the time ever since he disappeared. I love you guys. Hmm. And then he turned and walked out. We didn't say I love, we said it to our parents, but not to each other as siblings. And I was crushed. There's the hat in my lap. And I thought he doesn't like his cool hat anymore. Yeah, I still yeah. have the hat. It's with me most of the time. When I'm at the lake, it's there. I'm on the road right now. It's with me now. But he dropped that hat. And then he walked out. And as my mom would say it, he walked gave her a kiss goodbye, walked right past Norm, out to Norm's Jeep, threw his bag in the back of the Jeep, got in the passenger side and slammed the door and then kind of hunched down with his arms crossed. So she said she could tell from his stance that he was still angry and he hadn't spoken a single word to Rue Bottom the whole time. Not a single word. So Rubato gave my mother a kiss on the cheek and walked out of the house. The Jeep drove out of the driveway. And that's the last we ever saw. So what was going on there? Uh, you know, uh, Paul's up there having a good time, seemingly on some type of vacation. Uh, just doing the rough calculation on my head. June 15th uh, would have been July, like a two, July, excuse July, me, 15th, July 15th. Yeah. 1975 would have maybe been a Tuesday or something. Yes, it was. And so he was on a little bit of a vacation. And was it one of these things where he's getting called back to work early? Or what What, what exactly called. did your mother think was going on that he was, you know, what was going on there? My mother, part of her thought Paul was being a little rude at the time. And you know, hence the bit about let him come all the way up here and get you and save the train ticket for your next trip. I don't think, look, I know she had no idea what would develop of course. in the next few days. Of or she, you know, of course she would have sure. laid down her own life to keep him in the house. Mm -hmm. But he seemed okay. She never told me anything about her finding his behavior very odd in the days he was there leading up to the 15th. As I recall, he had only been there like two days. He got there on like Sunday okay. and was supposed to go back maybe Thursday. And here it was Tuesday lunchtime. Rubottom's telling him he has to come back now and normal Rubottom will drive up all the way and get him for the seven hour round trip. 
so the understanding was then at least at the time and maybe it's maybe that's the way it really was is that the reason uh, norm wanted him to come back down to plantation was because of work yes was because of work and she did she was very surprised at paul's anger mm-hmm. towards norm but she never got a reason out of him that day okay. he kind of just after the phone call and her telling him save the money use the ticket another time he just stopped talking about it okay so he never brought the topic up again whatever he was going to talk to my mother about before we all came in from the lake while she was making sandwiches was never broached again. Okay. Cause I guess what I'm thinking is that, you know, if he thought that he was going to be there Thursday, I mean, obviously he had gotten permission from somebody. And my understanding yes. is Norm was technically his supervisor. He was actually in a yes. position above. So he would have yes. had permission, but it seems, it, it doesn't seem to me that, you know, neither on the phone, he didn't say something to Norm like, well, you know, you told me I could have off till Thursday, or even after he got off the phone, that's three and a half hours it would have taken Norm to drive up there, that he yes. never said anything to your mother, any of his friends, you know what, you know, Norm, you know, was going to give me off the Thursday, now he's making me go back here for Tuesday evening, nothing like that ever came up, I guess. Yeah. Or if it did, my mother did not share it five years later. And at the time, she may not have understood or clearly didn't understand the significance of that return and was to happen in the ensuing days. So she just, you know, as anyone does in the moment, she thought it odd when he came up from the lake early and she wanted to help him whatever it was that was bothering him she wanted him to tell her and then help him but the her words the moment was broken and it never came back the opportunity never came back she then didn't want to she then didn't want to go and hound him afterwards she still wanted her son who's now a man 18 yeah to come to her on his own and not, you know, nag or nitpick to get it out of him. Okay. So once again, we have a situation where there was three, three and a half hours there where it would have taken Norm to drive the whole way up there. And we don't know anything about Paul talking to any of the other kids. Obviously he didn't talk to you or you would have remembered it about anything regarding any of this. We don't not know what that. he did, no. in, those, did no. in those three and a half hours. Do we know if he went down and Went back to water skiing for a little he bit. He did not go back. He hmm. did not go back in the water. I still remember what he was wearing. He got dressed after the phone call out of his, uh, he usually wore cutoffs, mm-hmm. you know, in the water. And um, he, or what? what's in the picture you're familiar with mm-hmm. holding yeah. the ski. Yeah. And um, put on a pair of jeans and, you know, traveling shirt and his uh, sneakers and just put the rest of his shoved rest of his stuff in his little duffel bag. Okay. Do you happen to Pretty remember if, to himself. Uh, if uh, Norm's family was at the lake at that time too, or were they back in plantation? Do you remember? No, at that time, once my parents bought the lake house in 73, and then the other families around the same time or a little bit prior bought that big mansion I told you about. Yeah. And five families owning 
a single dwelling rarely works out well. So that arrangement kind of fell apart. And then those families mostly had older kids. So they stopped coming up to the lake for the two week summers anymore. But most of their children would come up and stay in our house with us at the lake. Mm -hmm. So there are times Rue Bottom would come up for a weekend and stay with us at the lake. I don't remember him being there in the three and a half weeks we were there before Paul disappeared. Mm -hmm. But once private residences were purchased... It wasn't just summer visits anymore. Families would go up for Easter. We'd have Easter egg hunts at the mansion. And um, any time of year, except maybe November to March, when it's a little too cool to swim. Mm -hmm. But a lot more long weekends for the families that still went up. Okay, so Norm's... Uh, mother, other family members were not up there, so they must have been no. back in plantation. So he's down there. Seemingly, he's still going to work. Let's just uh, theorize a little bit. It's maybe something's going on with the plant. I'm not saying that happened, but you know, he needs uh, Paul to come back for whatever reason. Paul's all ticked off about it, but maybe doesn't feel like he's in a position to say no. Maybe he needs the job or something like that. Norm comes and picks him up, and that's the last time that any of you see him. Right, okay. Do we have any idea what went on? Of course, now Paul's going back to plantation. I guess he's going to, of course, go back to staying at home, which you told, already said, I think one of your brothers was already there, maybe staying by himself. So Paul's going back to plantation. Do we know anything about Paul, what he did for work or anything else between the 15th and the 20th? Do we know anything about that time? Has your other brother ever said anything, what he remembers about seeing Paul during that time, being that he was there? Well, as I mentioned earlier, they were like ships passing because of their different schedules. Okay. And there would be, Ev, if I, it's probable that Mark saw Paul at some point during those days. Um. When Paul actually disappeared, it's Mark realized because he didn't show up for work. Paul didn't show up for work. Yeah. But what happened down there also is that once my parents weren't home for chunks of time, Mark no longer shared the bedroom with Paul that they had shared growing up. He decided to move himself into the master bedroom. <laughs> while my parents were gone okay. to have more space yeah, sure. nicer bathroom which right. meant less interaction mm-hmm. with paul since they're not okay. sleeping across the room from each other right i guess but, what i'm saying know, is were... even though they were two ships passing in the night there was never occasion given that paul seemed to be going through something up there at the lake house that he never mm-hmm. made it a point to try to stop no. in mid passing and say you know what, brother, I need to talk to you about something that didn't happen during those five days. No, no, because Mark would have mentioned that once mm-hmm. everything fell out. Okay. They also, their schedules were such too, with Mark working nights and getting home in the early morning hours. Um, 
and then have you ever worked uh, the restaurant shift? I never worked in restaurants. No, restaurant? but I worked Seven Elevens at like midnight shift and things. So yeah, and you know how when you get off work, you don't immediately go to bed. Yeah, you know, there's usually I I worked in college in restaurants, and sometimes I'd get home at three a.m. and then I'd be up until six or seven, and then sleep till three in the afternoon. So. Mark had a different sleep schedule as well from Paul. So when Paul was up and around in the house, Mark was asleep on the other side of it. Okay. If that makes sense. All right. Great. Okay. All right. So just like two ships passing in the night, they have their own lives going on. But uh, Paul goes back. Who knows what the conversation was between him and Norma going back uh, to Plantation, Florida. But he ends up at home. And then we get to July 20th, 1975, which was a Sunday. And once again, I'm not sure if the, the plant was quite open on that on Sundays or not. Uh, yeah. But what do we know about that day? Did um, Paul get called into work possibly? Do we know anything about that particular day? Because it's the next day when people start to realize that he is missing. But on that day, do we know any of his movements on that day? The only thing we know is that he went to work with Rue Bottom sometime Sunday afternoon or Sunday evening. Okay. Um, I don't ever remember anyone else from that plant calling our house or calling Paul. It was always Rue Bottom who called him in. Okay. My recollection, okay. anyway. Yeah. But that's all. That's it in terms of details. He went in to the plant with Paul mm -hmm. and then was supposed to have left the plant around 12.30, 12 12.45 in the morning on the 21st. On the 21st. And supposed to have gotten home around 1.30 in the morning okay. on the 21st, Monday morning. All right. And we don't know if this is true once again, because uh, Norm Rubottom is not a very reliable narrator for all this. I think as people maybe can already start to tell, but did he say something? Was there an, uh, an idea that came up that they might've been going to the docks or something to pick something up on that day? They weren't going necessarily to the plant. They were going to like to a ship yeah. or something. Did that come up or? Sometimes um, Paul would work odd hours and I recall their the reason being a shipment coming into Port Everglades. So I think he would go with Rue Bottom sometimes to receive the shipment. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what if it was plant products or um, equipment. I know they exported some of their products, but they may have had to import other things to be able to make those exports. Um, Rubottom also had a, a small import export business of his own on the side. So he would get uh, shipments of his products as well. Um, I thought for a long time that he went to Port Everglades with Paul, I mean, with Norm that night. But according to Norm, they were at the plant. Okay. All right. Once again, though, he is an unreliable narrator for this entire thing. 
But so then, like you stated, the best understanding, I'll, but just so we're clear on something, has any other employees, have any other employees on that Sunday, if they were there, anybody see Paul and Norm together at the plant on that particular Sunday? Was Even if, let's say the plant was called, closed, did anybody else get called in? Did anybody else have to show up? Do we know anything about that? We don't. All I know from police records is that mm -hmm. someone said they saw Paul arrive. Okay. But no one saw him leave. Okay. Now we also have to make something clear is that even though uh, Paul had this 57 Chevy, he was not driving it. Did he have to rely on Norm to get to work? Yes. Or how, how, so yes. Norm would bring him to work every day? Norm almost, yes. Norm would pick Paul up and bring him home. Okay. All right. So that was not unusual for on that particular day for Norm to go there, pick Paul up. They go to work, but it still seems like very much up in the air. Somebody says, yeah, I saw Paul at work, but if it's only just one person, it just, I don't know what, I don't know what to make of that. And once again, on top of everything else, Norm is an unreliable, not narrator. So the understanding though, the story Norm tells is that they were there until very early the next morning. So now we're into Monday, the 21st. And he says, let me figure out how we want to do this. So he says that he let Paul drive his Jeep home. Is that correct? Two hour home. Yes. Okay. For the night. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about, though, is that your brother, Mark, who they're living together. Once again, none of the other family members are there. Mark wakes up on Monday morning, what does he experience? What does he see? Who's there? What is there? What has Mark said about that next morning, July 21st, 1975? Well, he got up and carried on in the kitchen with his morning breakfast routine. And the same dirty dish from yesterday, almost 24 hours earlier, was still in the sink that was Paul's. And they might leave a dish, couple of dishes in the sink for a few hours, but usually not that long. My brothers weren't pigs. But you know how it is when you have a roommate and you can tell when the roommate's been there or when the roommate sure. hasn't. Sure. Mark didn't give it any attention at first. He had his mind on being late to register for school. And Mark was always late. He probably had a deadline that day and he would have gotten in a lot of trouble with my parents if he didn't get to the college and register for um, fall courses. Okay. So his mind was on doing it fast so he didn't get in trouble. Yeah. And he saw the Jeep in our carport and the Jeep would be at our house once in a while. I don't ever recall Paul keeping it overnight. Mm -mm -mm. Okay. But Mark, just to stay out of trouble, <laughs> took the car quickly. He went inside the house because he knew Paul left keys on the dresser. So he found the Jeep keys on the dresser and he went out in the garage and took the Jeep to BCC, Broward Community College, 
to register and then come home. He didn't have classes that day, so it would not have been a long period of time that he had the Jeep. It was just to go register and pay and come back home. And when he came back, and he, he would deal with the consequences later. That so was we very be, much. I just want the listeners and viewers to understand something. This is not Paul's Jeep. This is Norm's Jeep. This is and it's sitting Jeep. in your in your home's in our carport or carport. garage. Yes, yes. And he says, "Well, you know what? Uh, he was probably going to ride his bike or something." He goes, "Well, yes. the vehicle's here. I think I know where the keys are. I'm just going to take Norm's Jeep, just like yeah. that. It'll be quick. No one will know. I'll be okay. back in thirty minutes." All right. Did he not find it odd at the time, though? that the jeep was there but he didn't see he went into paul's room to get the keys but didn't see paul there did he did that not occur to him do, do we even know if it did it he didn't give it a lot of thought at the moment it's one of those hmm this is a little odd okay but i have to get to school to register i'll you know deal with that when i get back okay. um it's possible he might have thought that the unmade bed or the made bed. The bed, the bed was not slept in. Mm-hmm. He might have thought Paul was in the shower, you know, just instantaneous thoughts, or that Paul was out on the patio somewhere. I just think he found the keys and just went, hmm, that's weird. Okay, well, I have to get to the school and register. Okay. I'll think about that when I get back. And we have to remember, you know, it's not like Norm is a stranger. Norm is a friend no. of Paul's, and Norm was over yes. there all the time, and he was like, well, you know what? I guess Paul must have driven Norm's Jeep back, or maybe Norm's around here somewhere, but there are the keys, yeah. and I'm going to take it, and I'll be back so quick, no, they won't even care. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. All right, please continue. And it's after he returned that he got a call that Paul was supposed to be at work. At this point, I guess it's afternoon. Hmm. And... I think that's when any thoughts of odd might hit his consciousness a little more. And that is when began the calls to Don, Paul's best friend, and other people to see if they knew where he was. Because um, Norm and Don were supposedly at the plant, and Paul was a no-show with Norm's Jeep in our garage so how and that that alone paul was a very reliable worker mm-hmm. unlike mark <laughs> who was a professional oversleeper paul was reliable if he said he was going to do something he did it so he wouldn't his being a no-show to work means there's something wrong okay all right so just to go through this again now mark gets up on monday morning he has to go to this school. I, once again, I think he's maybe thought he was going to have to take a bike because he didn't really he didn't think there was going to be any vehicle there. A vehicle is there. It just happens to be Norm's Jeep. He knows sometimes maybe when the Jeep is there that Paul puts the keys, you know, there. Uh, and he goes in there and there's the keys. He takes it, comes home. Does Mark see Norm that day? Yes. Okay. Norm came over to the house. In my memory, it was before discussion or anyone mentioning, you know, where's Paul? He's a no-show. Mm-hmm. But at some point that day, 
Norm came in the house, walked right past Mark in the kitchen, down the hall to the bedroom, and he got a leather jacket out of the closet, Paul's closet, and then turned around and walked out of the house with the jacket, never spoke to Mark. Mark and Rue Bottom didn't really get along. Okay. So, but you'd expect at least a good morning or hey or something. Um, He tried to speak after Norm. Like, where are you taking that? Mm. And Norm did not answer him and just left the house. Now, at this point, the Jeep's in the carport. How did he get here and how did he leave? Right. That's right. That's what I was going to ask you. Do you have any idea? How did Norm, if Norm's Jeep was in your garage, then how did he get over to the house in the first place? Exactly. Nobody Um, knows? I I don't know. I don't know. And And where are you taking a leather jacket in July in Florida? See, Paul was, my brother was well-built and strong, but not as big as Rubottom. That jacket would never fit rhubottom which is why he let paul use it but it was just an odd thing to have happen for this guy even though he's a family friend to walk in walk straight through the house to the bedroom go through paul's closet to get the jacket and leave with it and not even speak to my brother to mark when norm left did he take his jeep no oh wait yeah Mm. This is where it gets a little, I know Norm took the Jeep at some point to go look for Paul. Okay. And even as a kid, I thought that was stupid. Why would you do that? There could be evidence in the car. But he picked up Don, I think, and they drove around looking for Paul. My brother thought he might have gone to the beach. But Mark never really uh, followed Paul's schedule. It's not like he had a schedule on the fridge. So if Paul wasn't in the house, Mark wouldn't immediately think, well, he's due at work today. You know, where is he? So it it just occurred to him, Paul liked to go to the beach. Hey, maybe he's at the beach. Maybe he decided to take a bike and just ride to the beach today. It was only when someone said Paul was a no-show at work that um, foul, not not even foul play, you know, maybe something he got in an accident on his right. bike. Yes, something I, isn't it, right. Right. I guess I then have to ask you, once again, I understand you weren't there, but Norm coming over, Rubon coming over and getting that jacket, was that before or after people noticed that Paul was missing? Do we do we have any idea? Was that before, before. or after? Before, right. as my brother Mark told it, yes. All right. So what we're saying is Paul doesn't show up for work. Norm comes over to the house and not doesn't say to Mark, hey, why didn't Paul show up from work today? Didn't say that to him. Right. Walked in, walked Mm-mm. out. That was it. Yes. As the day progressed, that's okay. when activities and, you know, driving the car around to look for him. And then when he was gone Monday night, um, Rue Bottom picked Mark up to take him to the police station to report my brother missing. All right. So earlier in the day, 
Norm doesn't want to talk to Mark at all. Later no. in the day, he's like being Mr. Helpful. Yes. Okay. Yeah. All right. And we're still not sure when Norm came over there, how he got there. And if when he left, did he take the Jeep or not? All we know is that he came in seemingly before really understood that Paul wasn't at work. And he doesn't even say anything. I mean, if anybody knew that whether Paul was going to be at work or not, it would have been Norm. He doesn't say anything. Okay. What about Paul's bike? Uh, somewhere in all of this, did a bike that he have disappear also? It was actually Tom's bike, my brother Tom. We okay. always had our six bikes lined up on the far side of the carport. And of course, the bikes were not in use except by my brother, Mark, uh, while we were at the lake. Uh, when, when we got the call, which was the 22nd of July, Mark called the lake from the police department. Wow. Um, my dad went back south immediately. We followed three days later. And that's when my brother Tom noticed that his bike was gone. Hmm. And would have been in the carport where the Jeep was. Yes. Okay. All right. So just to sum this up, I know this is a very technical, very intricate disappearance, but that, and that's fine. I'm just going to go through this. Allegedly, Paul and Norm go to work on Sunday night. And then just after midnight, for some reason, Norm allows Paul to take his Jeep home. Dropped, Ru dropped yep. Rubottom off at his home. Yep. And drove. And then continued to ours, All which right. in my memory had never happened before. Ever. Okay. Not overnight. Okay. But to your knowledge, though, Norm did allow Paul to drive his Jeep sometimes. Hence yes. the reason Mark knew where the keys would usually be. Yes. All right. Yes. So Mark gets up the next morning, figures, you know what? The Jeep's there. I'm going to take it. Doesn't really think not much about not seeing Paul. Not sure what to make of that. He goes to school. He comes home. After he gets home, at some point, Norm just comes strolling in as if he owns the place, goes back to the bedroom, gets this jacket, leaves. We'll get to the jacket later, and uh, seemingly doesn't ask, you know, why didn't Paul show up for work? Where are my keys? None of that stuff. That stuff never seemingly comes out of his mouth. Later in the day, somebody calls from the plant saying, hey, why didn't Paul show up for work? This is how the disappearance gets started. And then at some point, Norm does have his Jeep. He actually comes over, talk, uh, picks up Mark. They go to the police station on that Monday, uh, July 21st. Tuesday, they Tuesday went, July. Yes. They come over July 22nd. And then so, once again, Norm goes from being Mr. Ignore Mark to Mr. Helpful. And then somewhere in this, also this bike that was your other brother Tom's, uh, went missing, and it never popped up again. No. Nope. Okay. Very good. All right. Um, once it was determined that Paul was missing, and given that Norm and Mark had some interaction, Norm came over, did Norm ever say anything to, to Mark about where he thought Paul might be? or And did he ever offer a theory at the time? Did Norm ever do that? Not that I can recall or that I've heard from Mark or other sources. No. Okay. All right. And maybe I should ask you one more thing. Given that the, the Jeep was in your uh, 
uh, carport. I'm guessing this, we, we call it a carport. This is one of those things that have as a roof, but it's technically outside. It's not yeah, like a real, it's, real garage. It was a Spanish style house. So it was a garage in construction, except it had open archways where the cars went in. Okay. And would you say having lived there as long as you did, that somebody would be able to pull a car in there and not be heard? Or is that, of course it would depend oh, on difficult. how difficult. We had Loose Chattahoochee driveway, stones, mm -hmm. Chattahoo like little tiny river rocks. Okay. So all tires were heard okay. on that driveway. All right. Then did this, does it surprise you then, being that Mark was there, he's sleeping, do you think he didn't hear the Jeep, whoever was driving it, not come in simply because he was just in a deep sleep? You know, yeah, oh, Mark, Mark would sleep through a bomb dropping. So... <laughs> I'm like I said, he's okay. a professional oversleeper, and it's because he slept deeply. So that that he did not hear something is not a surprise. Okay, very good. Thank you for explaining that. So all these people finally start realizing uh, that uh, Paul is missing. Norm, it seems, isn't being that helpful, even though Paul was driving his jeep. They go to the police. What do the uh, police do? Uh, initially, of course, you said like your father, he drove immediately back to plantation. What goes on in those next few days, the once again, the way you understand it? Um, well, I'll never forget the moment the phone call came. And it, it, it was a life changer for everybody. Yeah. But we, my father picked up the phone Mark told him what was going on and all we heard the same four kids who were playing Monopoly the week earlier we were awake but in the other side of the house it's not a house but I just heard a lot of activity after that it was my father packing a bag and he got in the car and left immediately he gave the phone to my mom told her what briefly what had happened and then Tom came in and told us, the younger kids, Paul's missing. And I said, what do you mean missing? And we didn't believe him. We thought he was teasing us. And then he said, listen. And down the hall, we could hear my mother crying. So in the ensuing few days, we all hoped it was just a mistake. I mean, I think Every one of your interviewees goes through that. Oh, this yeah, can't, absolutely. There's got to be, yes. he'll turn up. Yes. Uh, yeah, it has to be a mistake. Yes. And after three days, my dad called us back from the lake. And we packed up everything. We never went back that summer, but I will not forget we packed up the station wagon, the kids and my mom. We drove the three and a half hours in silence. We got to the house and the front area where cars could drive was very large. It's filled with cars, a lot of police cars too. And we walked in the side house from the carport. And my mom marched straight to the living room with all of us in pecking order behind her. And we turned the corner and walked in the living room 
I mean, the whole living room, there must have been six cops, full uniform, guns sitting there, which I, a little shocking for us. Mm-hmm. And a couple of detectives, daddy, of course, my brother, Mark, and Rue Bottom was sitting in the living room. And my mom walked in. These are her words. I mean, I was, I saw her do this, but five years later, she would explain okay. what happened. She walked in and of course, immediately went to my dad, gave him a hug and a kiss. Then she turned to Mark, gave Mark a hug and a kiss. And then Rue Bottom stood up and came to her to give her a hug and a peck on the cheek. And she said that in that moment, she looked at him and she knew my kid's dead and this one did it. Her words, her thoughts. And she said she got a feeling from him. I think she beat herself up for the rest of her life that she didn't feel it earlier. You know, she told my sister and me, I, I sensed something terrible in him in that moment that I either hadn't seen before or discarded for whatever reason. Okay. Uh, listeners know we don't do a lot of theorizing or anything. We don't do hardly any theory, not zero, but hardly any theorizing on uh, these interviews because I don't like to lead anybody. But we're just saying in that moment, that is what your mother felt. Yes, that is what she okay. felt. Okay. My do father you know- did not think that at the time. I mean, it was my okay. mo- my mother had six senses, seven senses. Yes, she was very intuitive about certain things. But I think it was her initial very strong feeling that she told my father about. And then it was my father who decided to step back from the family relationships and friends and all of that and try to look at things, look at Norm more objectively. Mm -hmm. But he was not on the same page with her at the beginning. Okay. Do you know if your mother passed that along to the police at the time in those first few days? Did you think that she ever said, you know, brought one of them over to the side? You know what? I got this feeling and here's what it is. Do you even, do you know? I do not know. And I, my inclination is to say, I don't think so. She let my dad do I mean, again, in those first days, they're still hoping. They're sure. not thinking I get it. death. Yes. And they're not thinking never. So you're not as circumspect. You're reaching for the most immediate solution. Yeah. And you're still in shock. But my dad, when it came to crisis situations, my father was very good at carrying out. He could He didn't go into shock. He would go into action. Mm -hmm. So I suspect for the first few days, given what I know of their marriage and dynamics, that she pretty much let him do the dealing and she was dealing with her feelings. Okay. All right. Now, we also have to point out, uh, we're going to get to that jacket here in a second, but is somewhere in this, just a few days after Paul went missing, his wallet popped up, and guess who had it? Who had it? Norm. And how did this all happen? When did this happen? 
Well, the police report that um, the wallet was found on the floor of the passenger seat of the Jeep. Huh. That's what ended up in the newspapers as well. But it turns out Norm brought the wallet into play and said that um, he found it in the Jeep. So those are his words that it was found in the car. But when Mark had taken it, when Mark had taken the Jeep on the fly Monday morning, so he didn't miss fall registration, he didn't notice right. the wallet. And my brother had a fat wallet. Huh. But okay. Mark, I mean, and the Jeep, it was one of the, the you know, the typical small jeeps two passenger seats very small cj5 or cj7 what we call a wrangler today yeah 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 so driving it i imagine even stuck at a light mark would notice if there was paul's fat wallet on the floor of the seat next to him so mark didn't see any wallet and Rubottom produced one later and said he found it where Mark did not see it. Okay, so this is once uh, the listeners know sometimes uh, news accounts can be misleading. It says, well, the wallet was found on the floor. Well, yeah, maybe, but the person who actually found it says that, but the person who found it is a person who is a suspect in the disappearance. So it being found on the floor, quote unquote, might not be true all we know is is that norm ended up with it and he turned it in yes all right so however he got it okay yes all right so given all of that um the listeners should not be and we're just gonna put this all in and it was uh you know a lot of times it sounds to me like the police spoke to him but uh how many times and we and uh we'll get into where norm was and everything but they did speak to the police, and uh, Norm did speak to the police. They went and found him a variety of times. Let's um, start with this one, and this is comes from later when uh, Norm moved to Louisiana, and we'll get into that. But this is a the the uh, story I want to talk about first regarding Norm's talk with the police. Let's talk about that one first. They go to speak to him when out you. Uh, Sometime later, when he's in Louisiana, what do they say was going on? How did Norm act? They wanted to surprise him. So they went to where he was living in Louisiana very early in the day. Because he was such a cool cucumber from their previous interviews with him. They wanted to see if they could get the element of surprise on their side. So as I recall, it was seven or eight in the morning and they showed up at his apartment or wherever he was living in Louisiana. And he was stunned when he saw the Florida police detectives at his door. They actually were momentarily happy because they thought, the element of surprise worked for us today. Maybe we'll finally rattle him and get more information out of him. 
So they asked him to sit down in his living room and talk to them. And he said, um, uh, and he normally no stuttering, no hesitation in his speech, but they could see he was rattled. We might have success today, Mm -hmm. but he asked them to go get a drink from his kitchen before sitting down to talk. And one of the detectives followed him into his kitchen, watched him open the refrigerator door, take out a can of Coke, take a few sips, put it back in, shut the door. And when he turned back to the detective, the detective told my parents, I lost him just in those few seconds for him to take a drink out of the fridge he was back to the cool cucumber and i knew i never should have let him should have made him sit down rattled in the living room okay don't know what that if that just those few seconds gave him the time to compose himself i don't know what i mean i don't know if there's anything physical related to the coke because the can was open he didn't open it it was already open in his in his fridge so that just shows you maybe the kind of guy that uh, norm uh was and in fact to go even further maybe this might have been stated by some police right here in florida did somebody call on this must have been passed on to you or your parents at some point did somebody call Norm, a police officer, call Norm a sociopath? A detective, yes. I was visited it? the cold case detectives in 2015, very close to the 40th anniversary of Paul's disappearance. A nephew of mine who had been a policeman suggested I do that so that they can put a face to the file. And I thought I was just going to walk in there and say, hi, my mom's gone now, but here's another Egan family contact and here's my contact info. And instead they took me into a meeting room upstairs and we ended up talking for four and a half hours. And during that meeting, they were telling me of the original detectives notes and observations that detective by 2015 had not only retired, but died, Mm -hmm. but they had spoken to him in 2009 when Paul's case was reopened briefly. And they told me during that four and a half hour meeting in 2015, that the original detective used the word sociopath to describe Rubottom. That was his experience, him talking once again. He was going maybe way back to 1975. His interaction with uh, Norm and Norm, not to foreshadow too much, but Norm didn't live too long after Paul went missing. But his interactions with him back in 1975 led this police officer to think, yeah, this guy, there's something up with him. There's another note to one of his interviews that is telling, I think, about him as well. I was told by a family member that uh, one session of questioning of Norm was 11 hours. And they still didn't get enough out of him to be able to charge or prosecute. But 11 hours is a long time for most people to endure. 
under questioning. And and on top of everything else, Norm never asked for a liar, I guess. I don't think he did. No. I mean, he he did seem to me to have an air of intellectual superiority. Mm-hmm. And that extended to most people, except yeah, my dad and my mom, I thought. But that if someone truly is that way, they're going to think they're smarter than law enforcement as well. Okay. Now, moving on, I know this is in the notes, and uh, I know you've sent me a lot, a lot of notes, a lot of paperwork and everything uh, that you've gotten over the course of the past uh, 47 years. Uh, Did Norm, though, uh, in so many words, say something to the idea, well, I'm not perfect, and then... He started telling some stories that I don't know if we're supposed to believe him or not, but it seems like he did say some things to the police. It it wasn't like he was tight-lipped the whole time, but it seems like he wanted to talk and he told some fantastic stories about not being perfect. What can you say about that? Um, He told some stories about... He actually told stories about my brother that were untrue. No one believed them, not the police, not us. But if you recall, my nephew was with me who had been an interrogator. And he said, and he's listening to this for the first time. Mm -hmm. And he said, this is a common tactic used by a guilty party to make the victim look like they're at fault or they're not such a great guy you know they did this and they did this either it's blame or um sometimes it's blame and other times it's in the guise of being very helpful well look i'm gonna tell you some other things and also to toss a red flag to this if you can send the police off into that direction they might stop with you for a while, with Norm for a while. So he uh, did a bit of weaving that the police, the detectives in 2015 told me have not been made public. So I can't share them okay. publicly, but okay. you, you are absolutely on track. And I, it, it ended up really um, not doing him any good if that's in fact what he was doing. Because his story itself in the course of the events of those days is inconsistent. Magically finding the wallet. Yeah. Inconsistent. So you throw the inconsistent statements in with the fantastical ones. And I think it just made it worse for himself mm-hmm. with the police. Right. And I guess what we're saying is his story is that yeah, I, I gave him my Jeep to drive home. He drove home and I just don't know what happened after that. And then, you know, I got my Jeep back and there was his wallet. And I really have no theory as to what happened to him. Yes. That's basically Norm's story. Yeah. That's basically I don't Norm's know that story. he, I don't know that he ever, aside from the red herrings mm-hmm. that he offered the police, I don't think he ever offered anything remotely plausible to them okay now it does seem to me though that they did somehow catch him in a lie regarding his jeep something about 
Uh, I have it in my notes that, you know, he didn't have his Jeep, but he was seen driving his Jeep before Mark found it in your garage. Is, is that true? Is that, is that something that's out there? Yes, um, that may be true as well, because I, I quite frankly had forgotten about Mark taking the car briefly, but I had always heard that Rubottom came over and found his car in our garage. Okay. And that's when I was also told that he took it out driving around to look for Paul. And as I mentioned, I was only 12, but I thought. Okay. But there is a possibility trying to put this timeline together is that, of course, he says that he gave uh, Paul the Jeep to drive home. But there might have been proof that Norm was driving his own Jeep around that same morning that he said that he gave it to Paul and that it was parked at your house. Yes. Okay. But it, I guess given that he was never charged with anything, they, the police could never uh, pin him down on this. You know, couldn't put it on. No. Okay. Okay. And remember, we're we're talking about a time too when DNA was yeah. not an option, right? And we also have to remember if we had cell phone information, social media information. Mm -hmm. Of course, newer Jeeps have GPS on them themselves, right. or you know, a lot of cars uh, have a lot of electrical equipment that the owners don't even know these days. Little black yeah. boxes and things like planes have yeah. now. Yeah, this would be a totally different kind of different disappearance in 2022. There's no doubt. There's no doubt about that for sure. Okay, but I guess what we're saying is back then in 1975 and, and afterwards, even when he moved to Louisiana, police were on him trying to get him to say stuff. He's telling some, you know, we can't go into the details, but some crazy stories about Paul, about all these other things. They never could pin him down in anything, but... I, you know, the feeling I get about this next topic is that maybe at some point he did feel some heat because not long after Paul went missing, Norm decided to go to the Navy. Um, how did you find out a bit about this? What did your parents think about this? Uh, how, how long after did this happen? A couple of months. I think it was, might've even been under two months I recall it being end of summer, early September. The interesting thing about this is that Norm was born in Toronto. His mom, his biological father was Canadian, huh. Norm Sr. Okay. So he and his brother were born and lived in Toronto when they were young. And then after their dad died, their mom moved to Florida where she met her second husband. And I remember hearing Norm on more than one occasion over the course of several years that he never got his American citizenship because he was afraid of being drafted and having to go to Vietnam. He didn't want to serve in the military. He didn't want to be drafted into a war. And he, he was almost a little proud of, of that. I live here. I've been here, you know, 15 years now, but I'm still retaining my Canadian citizenship. So uh, for him, so anti-military to volunteer and go into the Navy was just a, a shock mm -hmm. to all of us. 
And he didn't. He wasn't in there very long. Do you do you happen to know no, what happened to him? No. And, and, and it wasn't just the Navy. Uh, for I think from the information you gave me, he was trying to go into officer school or something like what you yeah. would see like in a movie, an officer and a gentleman, something like that. But it didn't stick. Or do we do we know what happened there at all? Well, he he didn't go in at the lowest level anyway because of his. Um, computer experience, technical right. experience. So he went in at some higher level than your standard Navy guy. Um, went out to sea, which took him out of detectives purview for, I think six months, if that long. Mm -hmm. And then he was very quickly discharged. I'm not allowed to theorize, but I, I, he might have. Well, we can theorize. Uh, we don't theorize about what actually happened to people and disappearances, but your understanding about him being, we'll just put it this way. Your understanding about him not being in the military is what? I think he confessed to being homosexual, which at the time was a re automatic reason for discharge. I think. He used the Navy to get the heat, to get away from the heat for a while and thought it would die down in his absence. Um, confessed to his homosexuality, got released. He was back in South Florida. And they tried to talk to him again after he got out of the Navy. I think that's the reason he took off to Louisiana. Okay. I can work for my family company in Louisiana and get away because he couldn't go back in the Navy now. He's burned right. that option. Right. So just to get away from being bothered by these detectives, he just up and moved to Louisiana. I'm surprised he didn't go back to Canada. At this point, by the time he went into the Navy, he had to have his American citizenship. I looked online mm -hmm. and I found where, when his brother got his citizenship and Norm did not do it at the same time, but he got his citizen, his American citizenship, I think eight months before Paul disappeared. Okay. In my memory, it's uh, December 74 or something, but that's not as important as all the reasons he didn't get it, yeah. all the years he lived in Florida, and it all had to do with not wanting to serve in the military. And in the early 70s, of course, be drafted to go to Vietnam. Which, uh, yeah, that would have been a thing. I mean, he was 23 and 75. He would have been 18 and 70. The draft still existed. The Vietnam was more still going still on, going although on. it was... Still uh, maybe winding down a little bit. We were, you know, a lot of people by that time, um, of course, uh, there was a big anti-war movement in the United States yeah. and started, of course, by 73, we were totally out of there. But still, the draft existed, I think, until Jimmy Carter was president, 76, 77, 78. So, yeah, he could have, uh, timeline yeah. would have worked out that he could have certainly yeah. gotten drafted. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Um, now... Let's talk about this. Let's move on to something else regarding Norm, but it has to do with a Jeep, but not the Jeep we're talking about for his disappearance. Mm -hmm. He actually had another Jeep yes. before the one that was involved with Paul's disappearance. Um, 
how did you find out about this? Uh, you know, this other vehicle that he used to have, when did this come to light? Was this something your parents told you or did you find this out yourself? It was discussed at the dinner table. So Norm had a different Jeep hmm. and he, it, it became damaged. It burned. And he reported it stolen so that he could get a new Jeep for free from insurance yeah. payments payout. And my brother knew of this and my brother told my dad. Which brother, please? Paul. Paul. Okay, thank you. Paul told my dad about this. This supposedly took place in the Everglades and uh, just a few years before, late 60s, early 70s, the Everglades had a massive fire. I still remember seeing little mm -hmm. bits of black ash floating about in the air in our, outside our front yard. And we were eight, 10 miles away from the edge of the Everglades. So there were restrictions in place regarding flames, open flame, fire, et cetera. So his Jeep had a cat, it was a catalytic converter issue that wrecked the Jeep. And then Rubottom set fire to it. Or can a car burn from a catalytic converter? Oh, issue? yeah. Well, absolutely. Okay. Oh, absolutely. All right. So that's absolutely. probably what happened. The car burst into flames and he told Paul what he was going to do. And at some point, Paul told my dad. And I remember my dad at the dinner table saying, that's illegal. He could go to jail for insurance fraud, not to mention the restriction, any, any, ramifications of endangering the Everglades environment with his burning car. So my dad talked to Norm about it mm. because he was Norm. That's in the period when he was coming around more and more and seeking my dad's advice on this and that. And my dad said, Norm, Paul told me what you're planning to do. And you could go to jail for this. I mean, he started yeah. very concerned. I don't know if he saw it as a red flag, but Norm explained it away to my dad and, and perhaps Paul misunderstood. Of course, I'm not going to file it as, you know, stolen. Yeah. But he told Paul he was going to do it just to see if he could get away with it. Okay. So that's maybe indication that, Norm was not above doing underhanded uh, illegal things. So that is an interesting uh, story uh, that happened once again, a couple of years before Paul went missing. Well, I don't think it was a couple of years. It was oh. maybe within the, within a year. Oh, okay. Year and a half. He had the other, in, in my period of knowing Rue Bottoms Jeeps, <laughs> he had the blue one longer than the yellow one. The blue one was the burned one. Okay. Then he got a yellow one. And that's the one I washed for $2 every Sunday. And that was the one he owned when he went, when Paul went missing? Yellow? Yeah. Okay. All right. 
Let's move on to this. Now, you mentioned this guy very early on. Uh, he was uh, maybe he did. He also work at the plant with Norman Paul. His name is Don, a uh, friend and co-worker of both Paul and Norm. Uh, you mentioned him. Let's talk a little bit about him. If you had a chance to talk to him about uh, Paul's disappearance, what were his attitudes toward Norm about Norm possibly being involved? What can you say about that entire topic? Paul and Don had been friends since they were seven or eight years old. That was Paul's real best friend. Rubottom reported himself as Paul's best friend to the police, but that was not the case. Um, when Paul started working full time at the plant, naturally spending more and more time with Rubottom, Don was still in his senior year of high school. He didn't graduate early like Paul did. So he took a job at the plant after he graduated high school just to spend more time with Paul for the summer. So he wasn't working there very long, maybe a month before Paul disappeared. Don didn't care for Norm. May I also add, I have to back up and add that Don used to vacation with us at the lake. Okay. He'd come up with Paul for not always the two-week stint when we were in the villas, but he might come up for a week of that. And then when we got the lake house and spent long weekends in addition to large summer periods there, um, Don was a frequent, he was like another brother. Hmm. As long as I can remember Don was like part of the family. He never really cared for Norm. And early on, that might have been a little bit of jealousy because Paul was spending more time with Norm those last months than Paul. But he didn't like to hang out with Norm. It's not like the three of them were buddies. Uh, especially in the weeks leading up to Paul's disappearance, Paul was trying to step back from this friendship with Rue Bottom and just keep his job thinking he could, you know, it's like a, a, a breakup, but you still have to see the person every yeah. day at work. Yeah. He wanted to just remove himself a bit from Norm's orbit and um, Don just got the impression that Norm was not pleased with that. Don and Paul were socializing as they did throughout their lives in the weeks leading up to this. They were going to parties together, double dating with their girlfriends. Um, Don told us, as did Paul's girlfriend at, at the time this all happened, that Paul thought Norm was following him or them after hours when they were out with friends or when Paul was at the beach on a day off. So when you say following in the 21st century, we call it stalking. Yeah. Yeah. Wanting to okay. see where my brother was spending his time. Okay. One right. story uh, I think his girlfriend told me, uh, Don, Don and his girl, Don and Paul and Paul's girlfriend were at a party with their recent high school graduate friends. 
Norm was not in that circle. He didn't care about any of Paul's friends, so he would not have been invited to this party anyway. But Paul was at a party. It's someone else's house. And the phone rang at that house. And it was for Paul. And it was Norm. And when Paul picked up the receiver, it was Norm. And either Don or Paul's girlfriend heard my brother get furious. And what are you doing? Did you follow me? Or how did you know I'm here? Remember, this is pre-cell phone. Every Mm -hmm. house has seven-digit numbers. Yep. And the only way to find it is, is to look in a book if you know the name of the homeowner. Yeah. So Rue Bottom had to do some digging. You had to follow to see where my brother is to then find out who owns the home or look it up by address or something. My brother was furious and he slammed down the phone and then was no good for the rest of the, he left the party because he was just so furious, but he was alternately furious and jumpy edgy uh i remember being told that you know before he'd go into a room in the house he'd be reaching around looking for the light switch first like he didn't want to be surprised by anybody in there if don touched him on the shoulder he'd jump a bit and my brother most of his life was pretty fearless mm-hmm. sometimes perhaps full-heartedly fearless i mean he would be when i said earlier he was the most vocal about being protective of his sisters what i meant by that is he'd be the first person to deck somebody yeah you know, he, he wouldn't avoid an altercation out of fear whereas with some people maybe it's good to get a little bit of fear but his what seemed to be fear of Rue Bottom, anger and fear, those last weeks was especially the fear, very unusual for Paul, very. And this is what Don told you. This Don, is what you. Please. Yes. Well, my mother witnessed it July fifteenth. Yeah, yeah. Right. Sure. Sure. But Don, of course, being maybe seeing both of them together, uh, you know, work outside of your family. Yes. Uh, This is uh, some things that Don observed. Don told the police at the time. And then I saw him in 2015 after I visited the detectives. And he told me uh, the following, that my brother, a couple of weeks before he disappeared, was with Don. Don was driving him home from the plants one day and he said Paul was sulky which was not like Paul you know just clearly preoccupied and with a broody face and Don asked him what was wrong and my brother turned to him and said I think Rubottom's gonna hurt me I think he didn't say the word kill But that was not like Paul to worry about physical altercation. I mean, just in terms of size, he would know that Rubottom could take him. But for him to be worried about that, 
enough to to have it affect his demeanor enough for Don to notice and then to admit it to him all of it is way out of character for my brother so I don't think he was afraid of being hurt I think he was afraid of being killed okay let's move on to this and we of course uh I don't know how much really want to go into this, but um, let's talk about that jacket first. Remember uh, to remind everybody that on this morning where it started, people started to realize that Paul uh, was missing. Mark said that, yeah, Norm came over, went over, got this jacket and left. Uh, eventually, Norm told the police a story about this jacket of why he went in there to get it, that he had to give it to somebody. But where did what did. Uh, where did that story go? Nowhere, correct? Exactly. Nowhere. Um, he loaned the jacket to Paul in cooler months mm -hmm. or for a cooler. They went on a road trip and he wore it in Colorado because even in the summer, the evenings are cool. Yeah. Um, Rue Bottom took the jacket back. And he told the police he had to give it to someone he knew who he had worked with or gone to school with at Emory University in Atlanta. And he named the person. Okay. And he said, that's the guy wanted the jacket quickly. And that's why he had to go take it out of the house. Well, the police followed up and contacted the man in Atlanta and he said, not only is he completely unaware of anything about a jacket, he hadn't spoken to Norm in a very long time. He said, I don't know where that, that story's coming from at all. I have zero knowledge of the jacket or Norm's intentions to give it to me. And he never did. So that, so he just completely made up the story. In fact, it sounds to me like this guy didn't know anything about a jacket even. No. And we don't know what happened to that jacket at all. I do not know. All right. No. So we don't. No. So it, actually, very... we used, I used to use it as a point of hope when I was much younger, thinking that uh, for some nefarious reason, following events at the plant or something, my brother had to leave and like go, go witness protection or something. And Rue Bottom was sending him that jacket because he went to a cold climate. These are the hopes yeah. of a 12-year-old yeah. girl. Of course. of course. Yeah. I guess what we're but saying is it could, Norm couldn't even tell the truth when it came to the jacket. A jacket, He, he yeah. couldn't just come over there and say, you know what? I wanted to take this jacket back. He just couldn't keep it. He had to make this extravagant story about needing to ship it to somebody and everything. And none of that ended up being true. This is why I think he really didn't believe he'd ever um, be questioned as much as he was. He, he didn't think anyone would ever think that he had done anything bad to Paul or that he was involved in any kind of foul play. It was his cloak of intellectual superiority. Okay. Let's move on to this. Uh, this is where I said before, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but how... Were there accusations made against Norm that were of a sexual molestation nature? We learned of his homosexuality because of interrogation. 
but I, I, uh, that yes, yes, that this is where it surprised everyone, my parents anyway, uh, and me, I didn't even know what the word meant yet, but he confessed that to police in that very long interrogation session I mentioned earlier. That's the, the most they got out of him in 11 hours. Um, my brother, Paul, told Don that Norm had gotten him drunk and assaulted him. My brother got drunk, passed out, and when he woke, Bluebottom was finishing. Yeah, uh, that's just yeah. We want to keep it PG. He he claims that he was uh, raped by Norm. Yes. He only told Don. We didn't know any of that at the time. And again, 1975. Mm-hmm. All other factors in this case off the table. I still don't think my brother would have been quick to go to the police over that for fear mm-hmm. that someone would think that he's gay or that he mm-hmm. um, encouraged it somehow. And that's just the way the lay of the land was back then. I believe my brother Mark knew Norm was gay because Mark came out mm-hmm. four years later. And I don't think either would say anything about the other because then it's, well, how do you know? Do you know what I mean? If you out one, you're outing yourself. And neither was ready to come out yet. Um, I will go as far as to say, I know absolutely of three people. Okay. Okay that norm made a move on mm-hmm. two of them were foiled this is outside of my outside of paul okay three others and one was ongoing for a few months with a younger person underage yes so they so there are accusations out there. Um, yes. He was never charged with anything. Just want everybody no. to know he was never charged with anything. But there were ac- accusations that Norm sexually um, molested under a, or even if, if we're to believe Paul, raped, um, sexually molested people who were underage. And Paul says that he was raped by Norm at one point. We have yes. all those stories put together. Yes. We do. Okay. And to actually, now that I'm thinking about it, the three that I know of were all underage. Okay. Nobody was over 18. Okay. Um, Did this not come out until after? We we just should maybe tell everybody Norm is not with us anymore. We'll get into how that happened. But did this all come out after Norm died or was this, did this come out? Of course, Um, I guess uh, Paul telling... Of course, we know Paul was still around, so Paul told Don this, but as far as these actual uh, sex crimes, um, when did that all come out? Any idea? I do. One of them came out 
two of them came out in the course of the investigation. Okay. The third one I learned about for the first time in 2015. Wow. Took a while. Yeah. Okay. 40 years later. And those are just the people who were in the broad circle of vacationing. Right. That doesn't count anybody you don't know. Norm knew through other means or whatever else. That's all just within your social circle. And wow. Okay. I do have to ask you once again, trying to keep this as PG as possible. Did uh, when Paul told Don this about what, uh, Norm did to him. Do we have any idea where this might have happened? When it happened? Can you even be, you know, this might explain why Paul's attitude toward Norm changed, like you said, well, at some point. But yes. can, can we think about, you know, knowing Nor- uh, Paul's schedule, Norm's schedule of where this could have happened? And when? I don't know where, but in terms of time, I think it was all in the four to five weeks leading up to Paul's uh, disappearance. Mm -hmm. I was thinking the other day, the timing of the escalation of events Mm -hmm. somewhat coincides with when the family wasn't in residence when we were at the lake. All right. So you're open to the idea that this is something that could have happened at the house uh you know everybody's up at Possibly. the lake and paul's there no, well, paul's at the house by himself and well paul's and you know paul's newly 18 you know he's mm-hmm. relatively new to well he wasn't like most 18 year olds he had beers since he was 13 probably but um the accusation is that rubatum purposely got yeah. Paul drunk so that he would pass out. Now, when I say, when I mentioned that we were not in residence, I'm not just talking about that incident. I'm talking about all of it put together. Mm-hmm. It all seems to be sandwiched in to the time when we were not at home. Okay. So, what I, I guess what I'm suggesting is that may have been purposeful on yeah. his part that the parents are gone. There's no one else in the house. So if he does something to my brother at work, he's not going to come home at, and be able to just sit down and talk to dad. Mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. he took the the opportunity for Paul's center his grounding family and his touch points to be away mm-hmm. to escalate his attempt okay. to possess my brother okay do you know if uh did uh, when don was told this did he take it seriously did he believe paul did don ever do anything about it well um, you it, know of course he believed him because who would it, again 1975 what guy's going to admit mm-hmm. that okay um don might have been the only person paul ever would have told and don would not have done anything about it if paul said no not yet i don't know what i want to do you know don would have respected paul was alpha a little bit in that friendship 
And Don absolutely would have um, respected my brother's wishes regarding any action or inaction. All right, so Norm uh, has a reputation, and you know, and, and once again, for this program, we don't care if he was uh, gay or not. We, we of no. course, have talked about rapists who are straight as well, but I think what's but important to understand is um, that it seems that uh, Norm was forcing himself around Paul. We can look at that story that he told Don. We know about him calling you know, Paul, you know, demanding that he come back to plantation, maybe for work, but maybe we should look at that in a totally different way, maybe, maybe. But we've established also, that, that uh, Norm was gay and we start thinking we can maybe start uh, seeing a reason that this disappearance happened if we are to believe that Norm caused it, you know, right. and, we want, and we know at Unfound that relationships are the number one cause of disappearances, whether yes. they're straight gay threesomes four seasons monogamy polygamy doesn't matter they're number one so yes please it's not homosexuality that is the issue it's mm -hmm. predatory behavior right. absolutely yes it is the issue that's right thank you yes okay so we on to this i don't know where this uh fits in everything but it was such an odd story that i thought we should talk about it and it has to do with I just call it the hospital story in the outline, but it has to do with fake cocaine. And uh, you can just take it from there. Mary. I'll preface by saying immediately after Paul disappeared and my mother said she knew as soon as she saw him, they had to kind of do a balancing act with him because he's the only person with the pertinent information. So they didn't come right out and accuse him because they wanted to keep him close. So he still would come over to our home in the guise of, you know, brainstorming with my parents or theorizing or just uh, appearing to offer sympathy. Yeah. But my father, told me my father told me part and my mother told me part he came over one night in plantation and they were in the den with the door shut so none of the kids witnessed this but our den was just a tv room for my parents it had two bark lounger chairs and that's it on tv so my dad and norm were in the chairs and my mom was kind of stretched out sitting indian style you know on the floor and she kept, she was saying to him, it's possible, I've been told that it's possible that whatever happened that night was traumatic for you too, Norm, and you've blocked, perhaps blocked some memories. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are hoping, we'd like to ask you if you would uh, basically, she asked him to check into Plantation Hospital and supervised undergo like a sodium pentothal session or something okay. with a psychiatrist licensed, monitored, of course, a detective is going to be there too, to uh, basically try to uncover any repressed memories 
if there were any. And she prefaced, she's explained by saying, this will help you too. So what can he do if he refuses? First, he balked a little bit. And then she said, but this is supposed to be one of your closest friends. You know, you love Paul just as much as we do. Don't you want to help find out that maybe something in your brain is hiding even from you, the very thing that either happened to Paul or that can help us find him. Yeah. Well, now now he's a little bit trapped, which my parents knew would be the case. They've painted him into a corner. You can't really say no, because then you will look like, you'll look guiltier. So his mask fell that night. He got up out of the lounge chair very quickly and started to storm out of the den, leaving very abruptly. And he basically told them, no, I'm not going to do any such thing. And my mom, he had to pass her sitting on the floor and she reached out and grabbed his ankle and she had tears in her eyes and she looked up at him and she said, please, please help us. Do you know what he did? He turned to my father and he said, Tell that woman to get her hand off me. This is the woman who's been welcoming you into her home for months, who's known you for years. Anyone else would say, Mrs. Egan, let go. But that also speaks to his... Um, lack of interest and any respect for women. Yeah. That woman, my father said it was all he could do. He wanted to fly out of the chair and kill Norm. I bet. But he can't. No. So the detectives thought it was actually the, the detective's idea, as my parents told me. And Norm ended up calling them a couple days later saying, fine, I'll do it. So he, my parents thought, great, we're either going to find what happened to Paul or find out that Norm really doesn't know anything. So Norm checked into the hospital. They gave him a room and then they gave him a gown to put on, you know, hospital gown. And they took him out of his room for some preliminary testing. I guess they can't administer something till they know more about the vitals of yeah. the patient. So while he was out of his room, a detective went into it and searched his belongings, searched his bag, just to make sure he didn't bring anything that could counter the effect of whatever was going to be administered to him. And they found a false bottom in his overnight bag. And they pulled the bottom out and underneath were packets of a fine white powdery substance So they took a couple of the packets and they put the belongings back in the bag and the detective took the substance for testing. Well, as soon as Norm came back to his hospital room, the first thing he did was put his bag up on his bed and start going through it. He took out all of the items, got to the false bottom, removed it, and said, oh, 
Some things have been taken from my bag. That means I'm not trusted. I came into this scenario to, to be helpful and engage in a trusting way with the Egan's. And my trust has been violated. So Diabolical. I'm Diabolical. He, he set it up. He set the whole thing up. And that was before he went in the Navy. Navy. So he <laughs> set the whole thing up to make it look like he was willing to participate, knowing he was never going to do any such thing. And it turned out to be something very innocuous. Like but flour, like flour. Or yeah, something, or something like or something. that. I know, I know Powdered nothing about sugar. I'm guessing it looked yeah. like cocaine, and I'm not an expert in that area, but something that's legal that's similar to, to the, yes. you know, the texture yes. and everything of cocaine. So that, when is, that, is di- that is diabolical. It's most, one of the most diabolical things I've heard of 240-some disappearances. And that, when the detectives called my parents and told them what he had done, well, hope just seeps away, right? But that solidified his guilt. It did. That stunt yes. solidified his guilt, whether what happened to my brother was accidental or premeditated. It solidified his guilt and then the whole Navy escape yeah. happened. That he even had a bag with a false bottom in it. In I know, the first I know. Is... And it, it might have been a makeshift false bag. I yeah, don't think he went yeah. to spy.com and bought it. But yeah. he purposely had something that, it might have just been a dark something that mm. upon quick glance would look like the bottom of the bag. But the detective was um, thorough. But Rubot was more crazy. thorough. Diabolical. That is crazy. Yep. All right. Let's move on to this. Now, many of you are probably thinking, and we we're going to talk about it. We don't want to theorize too much, but we have to go back to this, where they worked. Of course, yes. me, that's the reason we spent some time speaking about what is this business. We talked about how a horse can disappear in seven seconds. Yes. I do know that police did try to go to that place and kind of look over everything. Is it possible that... Paul ended up in this mechanism, in this machinery, being that he worked there, Norm worked there. Um, and what did uh, they discover? Could anything like that even be discovered? Anyway, scientific. did check it out. Um, because if it takes a horse seven seconds to disappear, it will take a human three or four. Yeah. Um, even if the, the worst case scenario for all of us is if, he went in there alive. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think no matter how my brother met his demise, that was a perfect way to get rid of a body, especially someone who knew that plant and that mechanism like the back of his hand. The police did not find any evidence of human tissue, but then they admit that we can't even find an identifiable horse part after seven seconds. So no, nothing was found. And again, DNA was not an option back then. So scraping the pit. 20 years before DNA became a thing. And yeah. 
Right. So I guess what we're saying here, uh, once again, I realize you got a tour of the plant was by norm, but you do not know the intricacies of the process and all of those things. Um, you know, I would like to think that even back in 1975, that somebody just couldn't easily be pushed into one of these things, but maybe, but you know, any, you know, what do you think about that? I stood next to it. You could very easily be pushed. I was afraid Norma okay. pushed me in. I was 12, almost 12 and I didn't like okay. him. And I made a point. I mm. wanted my brother to show me around and Paul got mm. called away to some machinery emergency. So I was stuck with Norm and he took me way out around back to where this pit is. And uh, the entrance to the pit is at ground level. You're standing at the edge. Okay. So you could just trip and fall in by accident. I imagine the flaps that close the opening to the pit are designed to give with the weight of a cow or a horse. They might not just automatically fall open for a relatively small human man. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they, they may have to be engaged mechanically to drop. You know, what I saw, the panels covering the action, animals go in to V-shape panels, which drop with their weight, and then they go down further. The true pit is below mm -hmm. this V-shaped elongated lid it may be that you have to push a lever back then or a button or something before they will even open but my brother was familiar enough with the plant that he he, he knows the lay of the land he wouldn't easily trip into the pit mm -hmm. but he could someone could very easily be pushed Okay. All right. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things uh, that uh, behind the scenes, probably more than the listeners and viewers would ever realize that the topic of wood chippers comes up. And what this plan is, is essentially a huge, huge wood chipper. Except for the wood chipper, you still see chips of wood. Mm, yeah. This with nothing. the pit, no evidence of a horse is left behind, except for maybe some grime, but no identifiable part of a cow or a horse okay that's how finely things are ground okay norm's brother you mentioned him maybe just a couple times his name is steve yes. he came to see you talk about that or came to see your he family did. uh let's talk he about did. that it was many years later but what went on steve was a good guy steve was great everyone steve and paul were actually best friends in the summer this two-week summer villa times together. Naturally, when Paul disappeared, um, communication among the families changed yeah. drastically. Couples took sides, and it was like a big, messy social divorce. And we didn't see Steve anymore. He didn't get involved. He was not close to his brother. Um, I was told that Norm picked on Steve a lot when Steve was little. He 
um, beat him up a few times. That's what I heard. So they, they were not close. They were four years apart. But Steve wasn't vocal of no one in the house, the, the Rue Bottoms household with their mom and stepdad made any public statements about the case at all. And as the longer Paul was gone, the less and less contact my parents had with any of them. But my parents still loved Steve. So fast forward, it was seven years, seven years later. Steve heard a little bit. Steve lost a friend. So he too suffered as a result of this. But fast forward seven years and I was home from college on a random weekend and just me and my parents, none of my other siblings were there. And this is at the lake and Steve, Steve knew that lake house. He spent a lot of time there. So we get a knock at the door and I open it. And it's now 26-year-old Steve with a little blonde woman whom he would introduce as his wife. And he came in the house and he sat in the living room with my parents and me and his wife for a couple of hours, just talking. The elephant in the room was not discussed. Um, He certainly has to have some family loyalty So he's not, didn't bring up his brother. We didn't even talk about his brother, Norm being dead at this point. And he was dead at this Mm -hmm. point. But my mom wasn't going to bring anything up unless Steve wanted to. And she figured if he has any information, he'll give it to us. I think my father was chomping at the bit wanting Steve to talk about it, but he made it, he talked a lot about his current life at that time, that he had gone to school, uh, um, finished college. He used to say, I remember him saying when I was a kid that he wanted to be a special agent for the FBI, but he didn't go into the FBI. He went into the police department in Fort Lauderdale. And he worked his way up eventually to detective and then um, sheriff, worked in the sheriff's department, computerizing the uh, law enforcement, various agencies. But at the time, he was a cop and he was working more towards um, investigative work. And we had a lovely visit. And when he left... My mom said he came to let us know that he's a cop and why he's a cop. He mentioned Arbra, Paul, in terms of memories. You know, when Paul disappeared, we didn't stop talking about him, but we just didn't talk about the disappearance. But he made it sound like Paul's disappearance propelled him into local law enforcement instead of working wherever the FBI assigns you. Yeah. And my mom said she thought that it also was his way of saying, 
he was sorry that his brother had an involvement in Paul's death. Mm -hmm. Think about it. If your brother were innocent of a crime and everybody was blaming him, would you go visit that family seven years later? I wouldn't. Mm -mm. So she, my mother got the impression that it was an admission of guilt Mm -hmm. on Norm's side. Yeah. Yeah. But unfortunately, never did come out and say that. Unfortunately, right? That was no, and then yeah. Okay. But again, he may. I think that there was family pressure, broader family pressure, because he, you know, he's the families are related who were involved in owning this rendering business. Yeah. And the most involved member, Norman Steve's uncle. I was told by police in 2015 that he forbid the Egan name from ever being mentioned in his presence. And he kind of uh, was the pack leader in the family. So I, I'm pretty sure the uncle would not have wanted anyone talking to the Egan's, never mind showing up at their house. Okay. So he didn't talk about it. But his very uh, appearance spoke volumes. Was that the only time that happened? What year, what, once again, what year was that that Steve did this? 1982. Was that the only time that ever happened? Yes. Okay. Yes, it was. Okay, so he came out and... He came, and, yeah, he came and um, talked. We talked a lot about his love of the lake and his memories growing up spent summers there and then long weekends with us later um we didn't even talk about his family his mom and stepdad um my mom often felt like his mom was close to saying something Mm -hmm. because in the weeks after paul's disappearance my mom and dad would spend time at uh, Betty and John's that's Norman Steve's mom and stepdad just hoping you know talking to Norm that they could come up with something maybe all the heads together they were still trying to maintain civility in the relationship but every time my parents saw Norm's My mother ended up consoling Betty. Betty would just say, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I wish I could do more. And I just know, I just know. And then she'd stop. And my mother told me in that chat when I was 17, that she said to my dad, I can't see them anymore. My kid's gone and I'm consoling her. Which is telling in itself. It is. And if I'm not mistaken, she actually said as much to Betty directly. Betty, I can't do this for you anymore. I'm the one whose kid is gone. Mm-hmm. So okay. that Steve okay. must have 
still have loyalty to mom and stepdad and broader family to not say anything incriminating against his brother in our home seven years later. Okay. Now we, uh, I've at least mentioned it a few times. Uh, Norm is not with us anymore. Uh, what year did he die and how did it happen? And my understanding is at least for quite a few years, you were, um, your family was suspicious that really he wasn't dead, but, uh, what happened to him? What year and what allegedly happened? It was August of 77. We're at the lake again. My mom and my sister and one of my brothers, dad was back home in South Florida working and he got the news. He called the lake and told my mom and then my mom sat my sister and me down and said that Norm was dead. Now he would have only been 25, 26 years old. So we were in shock. Right. And then immediately thought, this is bad, because there goes the brain yeah. with the knowledge in it that we need. So it turns out while he was living in Louisiana, he died from an overdose of a recreational drug that he enjoyed, which is called cyclopropane. That's right. It's like a laughing gas. Yes. I always only ever heard of that referred to as laughing gas. And I never heard about him using it until after Paul disappeared. I used to see tanks in his Jeep when I washed it on Sunday. And I thought he liked to go diving. But they weren't the big diving tanks. They were smaller. Little ones, yes. But anyway, it's supposedly a very very strong substance used for anesthesia. That's right. Surgery patients. But it's not used anymore because of the dangers, the dangers inherent in the drug, and it can cause heart stoppage, heart damage, and then ultimately heart failure. Right. And that's what happened to him. He OD'd on his laughing gas. And because and he was in, and he was in Louisiana because once again he had gone to the Navy. Whatever happened there, yes, comes it's back in Louisiana. He's working, in the, he's working for his family in Louisiana. Same kind of business. Yes, yes, same kind of business. Uh, one reason we were suspicious for so long is because my dad actually went to Louisiana to do his own attempt at some kind of investigation. Yeah. And he said, did the son of a bitch leave a note, anything? He just wanted, and he went there fairly quickly. I think he was hoping to get access to um, Norm's apartment to see if he could find anything that would shed light on Paul's disappearance. And as my father told me, he went to Norm's apartment and of course had to get to the landlord to let him in and the landlord said norm never lived there um he tried to follow norm's steps he went to uh where he worked i'm not even sure if my dad was aware at the time that um the rendering plant had several different locations not just miami mm-hmm. but 
he said he talked to people where Norm worked who said they didn't know anything about him and didn't know him. So, of course, that information is going to yeah. give you pause. Sure. His um, rue bottom was cremated. And his stepfather uh, flew up to get him from South Florida and identified him by a computer screen in the coroner's office and then took his ashes back home to South Florida. Um, all families are different. My parents thought that was odd. You know, Norm didn't even get along with his stepfather or so he told my parents mm -hmm. but maybe norm's mom was just too weak to you know just couldn't stomach doing that but there my father's experience specifically led us to think maybe he got himself in more trouble in louisiana yeah and now he's going to get on one of these tankers with the rendering plants shipment and take himself to Argentina, like he used to say he wanted to do. Just hop a tanker for fun. So that's why we were suspicious. Yeah. But when we saw the detectives in 2015, my nephew and I, um, they said that there had since been evidence of a service, you know, a guest book with signatures in it. And uh, I think they knew of a death certificate. Mm. I couldn't find one. I was looking online in 2015, 16. But that's why we thought for a long time that um, he just left the country. He's got the money. He's got the means. Faked his own death. What else did he, what else did he get himself into? Who else did he uh, approach, yeah. touch? in louisiana right now this uh you know how he died uh with this uh cyclopropane which once again if you uh i guess overdose on it you can have heart rhythm arrhythmia essentially have a heart attack and it'll kill you no matter what age you are but this is uh, relevant because didn't norm tell a story once again one of these stories that he told the police yes. about well, it could have been that I know employees would, would be huffing or something in the plant and maybe somebody fell into the mechanism. Didn't something like this come out in one of the discussions he had with the police when they were interviewing him? Yes, he called it a rumor. And he oh. said that he heard a rumor that a couple of guys in the plant were huffing. And one of them either got hit with one of the tanks or was whacked with one of the tanks by the other. Um, and maybe the impact killed him and they, he heard they might've thrown the body into the pit. Nothing was, I mean, who works at a place? This is, I heard a rumor we're throwing bodies back yeah. in the pit. I mean, is Jimmy Hoffa in there too? That was the same summer, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. it was the same month, yeah. but who works at a place like that with those thoughts and doesn't investigate? Or go to Uncle George and say, hey, there might be some really bad things. Yeah, it's not the norm just property. works. Yeah, it's not that just exactly. norm works there. His family owns it. And he's just exactly. Yeah, people exactly. are just dying at this plant all the time. But that that's one of his fantastic yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think 
some of the things he tried to pin on my brother, I wouldn't have put it past him to do. And this is why just the sexual element has never felt like enough for me with Paul. It's almost like Norm had something over Paul's head. Once again, we don't want to get too much into the theorizing or anything. I think it, uh, we know uh, here at Unfound that relationships cause disappearances. They can. They're the number one cause. And to think that um, Norm uh, being gay, Paul probably not being gay, uh, there's an attraction there. It's not reciprocated. That's all it takes. I mean, that's really all it takes many times for disappearances and, you know, just straight out murders to happen, whether it's gay relationships or straight relationships. So I don't, you know, I don't know if we need to go any deeper than that. It's just, it's just interesting to me that, you know, the way he dies and he's telling these stories about, you know, something like that. And of course he's telling the story at a time when nobody even knows that he has this, you know, uh, an addiction or whatever you want to, we don't even, at the time, nobody even knew that. And he's bringing it up. Yes. But, but projecting it onto other people. Yes. Projecting it onto other people. Yes. Okay. All right. So that is how, uh, you know, he died and it was just, once again, a couple years after, um, went missing. Okay. We talked, of course, a lot uh, about, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, family in this uh, two and a half hours so long, uh, so far, uh, disappearance. What did this overall do to your family? Of course, you talked very early on about all these families getting getting into this, at this lake. The Rue Bottoms are there. Norm is there. Maybe his uh, younger brother, Steve, is there. All these people having this great time. What happened to all of that after 1975? Oh, well... My parents ended up keeping two or three couples who were in absolute solidarity with my family and support. And for business reasons, um, other families chose to, um, well, my parents couldn't be around them because it hurt, like the John and Betty situation. So that friendship is dead. Betty's brother and wife run the family operations. So that friendship's dead. So of these couples, some aligned with the um, Rue Bottom side and some aligned with us. And my parents could not remain in South Florida after that. There was a fear of moving because Paul might come home. Yeah. You never, you know, there's still that little thread of hope, even though my mother said she she knew he was dead at the moment she saw Norm in our house three days later. But in 79, they finally sold our house and we moved to the lake permanently because it was just too painful for them to be down there anymore. I remember crying, we can't leave. And my mom said, Paul knows the lake. Mm-hmm. If he ever comes home, yeah. that miracle occurs and someone else is living in this house, he knows where to go. We were very fortunate. Oh, and some of the friends who aligned with my parents moved up there with us. 
They also bought home. They were friends until they all died. Friend for another 30 years. No more contact with anyone down in South Florida. Uh, in terms of our core family, uh, we were very fortunate in that we had a s- strong parents. This could have broken them up. You know, tragedy often splits a couple. They, we had a, a neighbor who was a doctor down there and he had gone through a family tragedy. So when this happened to Paul, he gave my parents something that I can only think of as like tranquilizers to help them just try to take the edge off. And after four or five weeks of taking those pills, my dad looked at my mom one night and said, we're a pair of zombies. We can't do this anymore. And if we're zombies to each other, we're zombies to the other five kids. So they quit the drug cold turkey. He said, we're just going to have to feel it to get through it. And then he made a statement at dinner one night and basically said, we can't live for the one we know is gone. We've got five of you and we just have to be good with each other. So the family stayed together, but everyone has their own ghosts from this in different ways. So it impacted each sibling and each parent in uh, different ways. You know, we're, we're all haunted. Everyone, every interviewee you have can tell you that. And we're not the only ones. Don was haunted the rest of his life. I mean, Steve showed up seven years later, clearly yeah. still haunted a bit, but it, it, we all deal with it in different ways. Some of my siblings don't ever want to talk about it. And one of my brothers almost became obsessed in the years following Paul's disappearance. So it's, uh, been a bit of a minefield sometimes at family gatherings if something gets brought up or one of my nieces or nephews now there are 19 of them they've never met uncle paul but if they were at the lake when my parents were still alive and they might ask a question about paul one may want to tell one may not want to tell so it's everyone has just been um living with a ghost that they handle in a different way some ignore the ghost others just look at it and say okay i'm going to exercise you and you know without going into detail there are only three siblings left and everybody's very different about it. Huh. My nieces and nephews, they all got old enough to ask about Paul. And will always tell stories, you know, about his personality or, you know, I don't think many of them know the full story of what happened to him. But my parents always were willing to talk about him and 
experiences in life, family vacations, traveling, you know, the funny stuff he did, but not the event, not the disappearance. Right. But it's, you know, you, I talked to you four years ago and then stopped because a ghost popped up big time in the form of my aunt and it halted me until I reached a stage, not consciously thinking about it, but just going another few years of life and COVID has been literally life-changing and I've reached a different stage where I'm not going to be afraid to talk about this. You know, after all these years, I'm not expecting a hundred calls on the tip line (laughs) to give us ideas and eyewitnesses, eyewitness events, but there's always a possibility that somebody listening knew him or know someone who heard something about you know how this works yeah there, i there's, do there's I just do. a possibility so yeah. it can't hurt and it doesn't hurt me anymore just the loss of my brother hurts yes but the ghost doesn't hurt me anymore so that's why we're here and yes, the listeners and viewers did hear correctly that uh, I've known Marion uh, for about four, at least four years now. Uh, we first spoke when I was still living in my old place down in Madeira Beach. And so it was uh, good recently for her to reach out to me. Uh, and that's how we ended up uh, ended up doing this interview. Uh, of course, I'd never forgotten about Paul's disappearance and the conversations we had back then. But yes, uh, the listeners should know that she is not someone who is just new to Unfound, let's say, within the last month. Uh, we first spoke way back 2018, if not 2017. So, yeah. 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 And it's, uh, I, I know it's uh, complicated with the cast of characters and mm-hmm. all the moving parts. But because I'm the <clears throat> one in the family who, I'm the aunt who is the, the Shanaki in the family, the story, the storyteller. And my mom told me, my mom died in 2014. And before that, she said to me, in my lifetime, I will never know what happened to my son. And my dad was already gone. He died in 2001. But, you know, my siblings have families and kids and now grandkids and they're busy with other stuff i'm the aunt who didn't have kids so i have all the family stories and the and the time to talk to the kids when they're interested in it so she said to me in my lifetime we will never know but you need to keep your finger in it keep rest of things maybe give your contact information to the police and just uh, don't forget. Yeah. Yeah. So we are. Do you have a Facebook page, website, anything like that set up for Paul's disappearance? No, because it's, first of all, so many years went by when that was not even an option. It's true. Yeah. And then you get so busy with work and stuff and think that 
Like I have a friend who could do a website for me, but then I'd have to maintain it. I don't know how I'm, I tried <laughs> WordPress over and over and I keep uh, screwing up our family rental house site, but I've spoken to a couple of people who were in his life back then, who certainly haven't forgotten over the years. And then they spread the word among others. Like they, they just had, after I saw the police in 2015, there was a 40 year high school reunion Hmm. at St. Thomas Aquinas. And Don told me that Paul was the talk of the event. They even put a little picture out with a candle of him. And I had had that long, a long lunch with him just a month prior. So he told their shared classmates the update of my visit to the detectives and that it's not active. It's pending inactive now, the case, but it's still officially open. You know, you can't close a missing person's case till you find someone. But anyway, that's a long way of saying, no, we don't have a website, but Okay. At least the core people who were in his life back then have been made aware of and brought up to date on events in the 40 years since they last saw him. So okay. if any of them knew something, I think they would have come. I think you're forward. right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, Facebook page is something as simple as that can certainly raise the profile of any disappearance, no matter if it's a, a newer one or one going back to the 1970s. Of course, it's easier to manage than a WordPress site. Uh, we have a WordPress website at Enfonso. I know some of the ins and outs of that. Oh, I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. So I know, what you, you know, I know how sometimes it, it can be very quirky. But something as simple as a, a a Facebook page, just you know, you know, please help find Paul Egan. Something like that, you know, can go a long way to uh, you know, once again raising raising the profile, and you know, yeah. more people to find out about it. Just something to think about. Well, I have someone who can help me with that, so maybe I'll put okay. that on his to do list. Okay, yeah. yeah, I think it's I think it's worth the time. Uh, website. Once again, it can be a lot of work. Uh, Facebook page, uh, a lot less work. Still, you're going to get, you know, trolls and, and things like that. But I think it's, I think in the end, it's worth it. I think it is. Okay. Do you have any final words, Marion, before we complete this interview? No, I've talked enough about me and my family, really. But okay. it's, from my perspective, Everyone I listen to you that you talk to, mm-hmm. no matter what the circumstances, you can completely understand the hole they're walking around with for, if they're unfortunate, the rest of their lives. And it's, I don't think until you've been through it, you can really understand and that's true of just about anything, but yeah, of course, I, get I listen yeah. to, I, I read the blogs and listen to your podcasts and my heart goes out to every single one of them because I, the feeling of those first, the first news and the first few days, but I think not everyone is as fortunate 
as we were to have parents who were determined not to let it destroy our family. And I, that's just the most saddening collateral damage in something like this. Yeah. Even if someone just goes to get bread and doesn't come home, it can just destroy everyone else with it. And I was very lucky to have parents who refused to let that happen. And my heart goes out to anyone else who did not have that type of support. Yeah. Uh, the most common guest we have on Unfound are our mothers of missing adult children. And you know, I don't know how much it comes up in, in every interview, but certainly behind the scenes, they talk about Balancing the time between trying to figure out what happened to their missing child, but also giving the, the attention to all the other children that they have. Yes. And and, it, and I know they talk about it being very, very difficult. You know, well, that's why. Because you can become obsessed. You, you yeah, think, yeah. well, if I'm not doing this, then, you know, what does that mean? And then even children have talked, you know, they'll say, well, hey, mom, I'm still here. You know, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun, you know, I don't know how you balance it. Yeah. Well, when my dad made that announcement at dinner about, because my mom and dad at that point both believed for my mom with every bone in her body, she said she knew Paul was dead. And my father came to believe that as well. So there wasn't, in that sense, no matter what they do, they're never getting their son back. Yeah. They truly believed, you know, that this is it. We're never getting it back. So that might have made it a little simpler for my dad emotionally to say, we have to live for the five who are yep. left, not All the right. one who's gone. And I at first thought that was cold. I cried <laughs> myself to sleep that night when I went to bed. And how could you? My mom cleaned out his stuff and donated it or gave Tom whatever Tom wants. You know, my brothers divvied up his things and some went to um, charities. And, oh, I hated her. Hated her for that. But when I'm 12 years old. But what she knew is right. I didn't want to believe it for years. I don't think my brother's alive. So there's a level of activity that parents of missing people think they need to be keeping up that becomes irrelevant when the person. But years later, I went to a therapist for totally unrelated reason. And of course, that comes up. All your sure. big events come up yeah. in therapy. Yeah. And he said to me, what your father did, what your parents decided might have seemed terrible and like they were just forgetting about your brother. But he said, that is actually probably what saved your family. Yeah. He said it was very wise and very healthy, given that they truly believed your brother was dead. Yeah. And that was 30 years later. And now, even I believe my brother is dead. But every time I've seen a news story about missing people since, I always wonder about the rest of the family. Because very often, especially in the high-profile cases, you read three, three, three years, years later, later someone committed suicide, 
Yep. Or the parents are divorced. Common. Or yeah, I mean, so many bad things can happen as fallout. And I'm very grateful that we didn't have that direct fallout. Thanks to my mom and dad. So Marion, I think I'll give you, you well, go ahead. May I say one more thing. Go ahead. In April to early 2009, I got diagnosed with cancer. Wow. Right? Okay. No big deal. I'm fine. Okay. But it was a shock. There's no, you know, at first you don't know what to do. I had needed to take a few days to process. And while I was processing, my mom called me on a Sunday. I was living in Atlanta and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, no, my mother never asked that. So what's wrong? Are you sitting down? So I sat down and she said, the police think they found your brother's remains they didn't. It was all a false alarm. But for a few months, we went through a different stories and back and forth between police department and Broward Sheriff's Department and this and that. And that, to me, made the cancer a breeze. Mm. I hit the floor blubbering and and you know, there's there, you have doctors and specialists who tell you what to do. All I have to do is show up and follow instructions and they'll fix me. But there's no manual for this, especially dredging about 40 years later and telling us you found his body. So it's all perspective. Whenever I think I'm having a bad day or this, it's, it's a perspective event. It is absolutely. Yes. Perspective. Yes. Marion, thank you for being on this episode of Unfound. Oh, thank you. I appreciate your patience (laughs) and all of your listeners' patience. (laughs) You're welcome. And that was my April 4th, 2022 interview with Marion Egan, sister of Paul Egan. I thank her for joining me and all of you on this episode. As you heard at the end... Marion and I first spoke back in late 2017 or early 2018. I was so happy when she messaged me out of the blue about a month ago. Given the high quality of the interview, I think you can see why. Marion also sent me a large amount of material collected over the years. Much of it, not all of it due to some privacy and legal concerns but much of it is now available on the Unfound website on the Paul Egan page. You can download the PDF files and go over them for yourselves. Those files are also available in the Unfound discussion group on Facebook. You're in the group, right? Once the interview is over, Marion realized she forgot to mention something Dawn told her. Dawn, of course, was Paul's friend, was kind of Norm's friend, but he also worked at the plant with the two of them. He said that in the days after Paul's disappearance, Dawn noticed that Norm had his ribs taped up. Unfortunately, I'm not sure how soon 
after Paul went missing that Don told Marion this. My impression is this is something that might not have come up until a long time later. But this is something that Don said. So you should probably figure that into your calculations as you try to figure out what exactly Norm did to Paul if, in fact, Norm did anything to Paul. Before I get too far into this summation, I think I need to say that despite there being every reason in the world to believe Norm not just knew what happened to Paul, but actually killed him on purpose, I'm not sure there's any scientific or factual evidence to prove it. Meaning, if Norm hadn't died, and some ambitious prosecutor would have eventually charged him with Paul's death, despite there being no body, even given what we know in 2022, I'm not totally sure there would have been a conviction. Why? Because there's actually nothing contradicting the idea that Paul drove Norm's Jeep home that morning, then jumped on a sibling's bike, and rode off to somewhere. Of course, the counter-argument could be made that the reason that we think that is because that's exactly what Norm wanted everyone to think. Hence the name of this episode. In addition, in a trial... Paul's family would have had to have admitted that he did seem down and depressed before he disappeared. That's all the defense would have needed to cause reasonable doubt. So then, where to go with this? How can we make progress in 2022? How do we, 47 years later, outthink a guy who pulled off that fake cocaine scheme at the hospital. My opinion is that if we are to believe Norm killed Paul and that Norm thought everyone would suspect him, and really he said so in so many words back at the time, then Norm had to think everyone would believe he pushed Paul into the pit at the plant. That makes all the sense in the world. However, Given what I think I have learned about Norm, that would be too easy for him. He loved to lie. He loved to trick. He loved to know he outthought everyone else. In addition, since I think we can guess that the motive was that Norm liked Paul, but Paul didn't like Norm, I don't think Norm would have allowed Paul to be cut up into nothingness. Paul meant too much to Norm. Plus, there's the wallet. I have to believe Paul had it on him that night at work. Then how did it survive the pit? This is enough for me to think Paul didn't end up in the pit. Like many lovers who kill, Norm put Paul in a place where he could visit him once in a while. In addition... Knowing Norm the way we now do, I think Paul was put in a place right under everyone's noses. Once again, so Norm could show how smart he was. Yes, I know this is giving away more insight in an episode than usual, but that's what you have to do sometimes. 
to combat the truly diabolical. I'll leave the theorizing up to you. And that's the program. If you found it informative, please go to the app that you use to listen to Unfound and give this podcast a nice review. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Densel, and you've been listening to Unfound.